coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. It's a collection of some of Alan's favorite moments from TechSnap past, plus the week's latest stories in a rock and roundup. All that and much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 246 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 17th, 2015. Happy holidays, though. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the Ab and the Tech and the Teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Hey, Alan. Happy holidays. Yes. A very snappy Christmas. Oh, it is a very snappy Christmas this year. We thought we would do something kind of fun. I don't think we've ever done anything like this before in the Tech Snap show. And so this week, we're going to go through some of Alan's favorite past topics, subjects, um, war stories, whatever it might be that Alan loved from the past. Mm-hmm. And we're going to feature them in this special holiday episode. And then we're going to have a roundup with all new roundup links. All new content uh, yes, that we recorded. So still this week make sure you get some new stuff. Yeah. But also yeah. some memories of some of the crazy things that have happened over the years now. Mm-hmm. I think as we're getting close to five years of doing this. Yeah. It's and just. So, wow. okay, be honest. When you were looking back, what did you forget? About, like, was there something that jumped out at you that you forgot or something? Well, that- the one that hit me more recently was thinking about, you know, the latest file server I built is like 200 and some odd terabytes. I'm like, how would I have done that without ZFS? <laughs> it's like, what I don't did I do even know. ZFS? What did I do? Well, it was an animal. Well, I don't even know how you would do that. <laughs> like, I, I literally can't think of a way to do that that wouldn't be terrifyingly bad. Well, actually, that's sort of a good segue to the mm-hmm. first uh, batch of clips uh, the, from episode 24 of the TechSnap back catalog, the mm-hmm. Ultimate Raid episode, which... Yeah. Is this so pre-ZFS? Yes, this is pre-ZFS, and... Uh, so that's the first thing. It's like, this is before I was a ZFS addict. That's, you know, there's not that many episodes of that, it turns out. I didn't realize how few episodes there was before I turned into a ZFS addict. Uh, but um, in answer to, like, a small feedback question, so we had, like, a whole episode. And then in answer to this small feedback question, it's like, what raid level should I use? I'm like, oh, okay, let me sit here and explain every raid level and what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and what you would use it for, and what the advantages and disadvantages are. Of yes. course, at that point, I didn't realize how terrible Raid was. Right. I mean, it was the best you could work with, you thought, yeah. at the time. It was, it was all that there was. And it was like, oh, I kind of wish that I had a system complicated enough to need that. And it turns out as soon as I did, I found a better solution. Yeah. And then uh, the clip that will follow that, just about 10 episodes after that. Well, even before that, the other thing that was cool, if you... Uh, it's it's not the clip, but if you want to go back and check out episode 24, on top of the fact that I'm, I'd be still wearing those headphones and so on. Oh, good. Um, that won't be embarrassing. That episode also has the details of the Beast Attack, one of the first uh, mm-hmm. of those against SSL that basically turned to be the beginning of the unending onslaught against SSL. It really was, wasn't it? All of these attacks, and it was kind of one of the first with a name. Like, even huh. back then, nobody had the concept that calling it Beast as a clever acronym on the name of the paper would catch on to the point where, you know, Heartbleed would be this whole thing, thing and the yeah. remarketing, and yeah. now everybody's got to have a logo and everything with their vulnerabilities. Yeah. It's just interesting how much of that started all the way back then and made a big difference as the years came across. 
So uh, you'll see a little bit of Alan's journey in the next couple of clips we're going to play for you mm-hmm. guys. But uh, we thought, you know, if you're going to build a home server, you probably want to protect your data. And uh, there's gonna, we're going to talk about some ways to do that Linux Action Show. But, Alan, you're going to talk about good old-fashioned RAID. Yep. So lay it on us, sir. Uh, yeah, so basically what RAID is is a set of technologies that let a bunch of independent disks act as if they're one uh, logical disk. Redundant array of independent disks? Yeah. There you go. And so uh, in the first type of RAID, uh, RAID 0, which is called striping, you basically have two or more disks, and then as you are writing the data to them, you break the data up into blocks, usually mm. about 64 or 128 kilobytes. And the first block goes to the first disk, and the second block goes to the second disk, and then back to the first and second. Or depending how many disks you have, it just gets spread out. So that means if you write, say, 10 megabytes of data, it's getting written half to one drive and half to the other drive. So yeah. that means both drives are writing at the same time, meaning that you can write that data down twice as fast. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, then how the do they, disks, so if you're writing it to two different drives, how does, it, how does it recover if one of those drives fails? It doesn't. That's the problem with RAID 0. Mm. So you get extra performance because you have more disks reading and writing the data. Uh-huh. But and, you, and you know uh, what, to be honest with you, I do RAID 0 on my gaming machines. Really, and I, now I just go SSDs, but for just like, you know, like I want the zones to load fast and stuff, you could notice a difference yeah. if you RAID 0, just even in a desktop. Yeah, and, uh, so, and the other advantage for RAID 0 is there's no loss of storage space. Right. Uh, however many disks you have, you get that number of disks n times the smallest of those disks. So if they're all the same size, you get the full capacity of all your drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, while you're reading and writing, you have multiple physical disks doing the work, and so it happens faster. And when yeah, yeah, and you really see it because if you can read from yep. two drives at once, oh boy. Yeah. I so can... the disadvantage is that there's no redundancy. If right. one disk dies, you've lost half your data, and it's every other block, so all your data is basically destroyed. Uh, so, but a common use case for RAID 0 is something like video editing, where you need that really high throughput. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I should have mentioned, actually, the machine, yeah. machine we're recording on right now has uh, two 10,000 RPM hard drives in a RAID 0. Yeah, and so you have additional speed from those drives just being 10,000 RPM mm-hmm. plus RAID 0, just mm-hmm. so that you can achieve the read and write speed you need to record the, uh, edit. The, um, the video we're recording right now writes to the hard drive at 165, something 170 megabytes a second. So you really right. have to and have some... A, a, a regular 7200 RPM hard drive can manage, if you're writing in a straight line, like 100 megabytes a second, but not 165. No, and you can't have it... You, can't, you have to have a little bit of overhead, right? Because you can't have exactly. it slow down or else you lose frames. So you've exactly. got you to let it maybe have some overhead for other processes to hit the drive from... Yeah, and if anything else touches that drive, then you cut your speed in half and mm-hmm. it gets really mm-hmm. bad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next other type of RAID is RAID 1, which is called mirroring. And basically, in this type of RAID, every block that gets written to the first hard drive is written identically to the second hard drive. So both disks contain exactly the same data. Uh, so the total size of your logical drive is the number of disks you have divided by two. Yeah. So, so or sorry, the number of disks divided by two times the size of the smallest drive. So, so you only get you, half the storage. Yeah, you get half the storage. But And uh, you... Uh, there's a, there's a hit with writing in performance, but there's an improvement with reading, right? Right. Uh, so writing is usually about the same because both disks have to uh, do it. Now, there can be a small hit because you have to wait for both to finish before uh, you can continue. True. Uh, but, yes, when you're reading back, you get double the read performance because you can have two heads working. One point to mention, you, were, you mentioned how uh, you sometimes have to wait as it, as, you, as it writes before you can continue. This is where sometimes desktop 
level raid controllers will go wrong. And yep. they're just not, sometimes they're actually just kind of software-based rate controllers, and they actually use your CPU to do the, some of the math for rate, and they will slow down on the rights here in particular for this kind of stuff. Yep. So if you've noticed when you, after you've impl- implemented RAID, that it just takes forever to copy files around and stuff like that, it could be that you don't have a very good RAID controller. Yep. Hmm. All right, so that's RAID uh, 1. And that's, honestly, RAID 1 is like a real solid solution if you've got two hard drives in a server and you just want to have redundancy for one of them to fail, right? Yeah, and uh, so when one of the two disks does fail... The other contains exactly the same data, so all you do is pull out the dead drive, pop in a fresh one, and through a process called resilvering, all the data from the good drive is copied <laughs> to the uh, bad dri- the new drive, and you're back to a healthy RAID array. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So yes, RAID 1 can improve your read performance because you have twice as many heads doing the work, but it's not going to help your write performance. It may have a small impact on it. Right, right. Usually does a little bit. Uh, yeah, the main disadvantage of RAID 1 is that you lose half your storage capacity. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have that in there for parity. You have to have yeah. that space for the parity. Well, it's not even parity. It's an exact duplicate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk ahead. about parity in a minute. Right, right. Uh, and RAID 1 is typically used on systems that require really high fault tolerance. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not worried about how much storage you need or how many hard drives you need. You just need the server to be able to keep going when one of the drives dies. Right. Hold it together just long enough so you can get something yes, in place. And uh, yes, importantly, the system is still usable while, uh, as long as one of the disks in mm-hmm. the mirroring is still working, mm-hmm. the system's still usable. I'll tell so you. So if you like, set up, if, you, if it's a really important system, you could have four copies, identical copies of everything. And if three of those disks die, as long as one's still working, it's still running. Right, right. Yeah, web servers, you know, um, where you just have like a real basic page on there and you don't want to look, you know, you don't want to go down. That's a good example. Or domain yep. controllers for a Windows network. You don't yep. usually need a lot of disk I.O. You just need it to be up so people can log in in the morning. RAID, RAID 1 is a good yeah, So this way you want like double power supplies, double hard drives. Mm-hmm. Just remove that single point of failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there are other types of RAID, like RAID 2, which uh, currently is, is not used. Uh, basically, the RAID 2 idea was it was a way to do the striping, but such that uh, it was done at the bit level. So you would have a number of drives where the heads be working perfectly in tandem, and you'd be like, Treated as if it was one big physical drive, almost. Okay. Yeah. And so, they would ha- have the same addresses for the bits, uh, but basically, because the controllers don't quite have that level of control over the disks, and because it has some other problems, it was only ever theoretical. So mm-hmm. it's never actually been used. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it if it did work uh, as it was explained, it would uh, have been. Really fast. So they kept the RAID 2 like, designation assigned to it, but they just yeah, moved on. For... It, somebody came up with it, but right. nobody actually ever built it because of that makes sense. physical problems. I remember hearing that a long time ago, and I'd, yeah. I'd always kind of just never really paid attention to the fact that we never use RAID 2. <laughs> yeah, and uh, RAID 3 uh, is similar to RAID 0, but instead of using those blocks, it does it for every byte. Uh, now, the problem is that most drives are limited in the number of input-output operations they can do per second, are called mm-hmm. IOPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so by doing it in such small chunks, instead of even like the 512-byte uh, sectors of the hard drive, uh, you're killing your performance. Uh, uh, so, and more importantly, if you try to access more than one file at a time in a RAID 3 array, the performance just goes out the window. Mm. So RAID 3 is rarely ever seen anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of RAID 5, though. Uh, RAID 4 is basically identical to RAID 5, except for the parity information is always specifically on one disk. Oh, uh, really? That yeah. seems like a single point of failure that would be kind of counterproductive. Like, the uh, whole point of RAID, well, no, right? No, because if, if you lose the parity disk, you can just recreate it. 
And I guess you could always have your parody disc be a RAID 1 disc somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about nested RAID in a minute. Okay, okay. I'm getting but, excited, uh, Alan. Yep. Uh, RAID 5. Yeah. This is one of the most common ones. Uh, so it basically combines the idea of RAID 0, of your striping, with what's called parity. And so uh, when you write your data, you break it up into uh, as many chunks as you have hard drives minus one. So in this case, we have four disks. So your data is broken up into chunk, uh, three chunks. Mm-hmm. And what, one of each of those chunks is written to a, each of the hard drives. And then the fourth drive gets basically a, what's called a parity block. And that is basically a checksum of the three values. So basically, it adds all three of those uh, numbers together and it writes it down. So now if, say, disk one in this diagram were to die, you would then have A1, A3, and AP. Right. So if you took AP, subtract A1, and subtract A3, the number that's left would be A2. So you'd be able to figure out what was supposed to be on the missing disk. Mm-hmm. And that's so that really you could, uh, the uh, controller on the fly can figure that out. So even when that disk is broken and hasn't been replaced yet, the controller can figure out what was supposed to be there but it'll be slower than having the actual disk. Yeah. And then so once you uh, replace that broken disk and the resilvering process goes through and rewrites all the data that's supposed to be there, then you're back to your full performance. Uh, the other thing RAID 5 does is it staggers those parity bits. So the first pass, it's on hmm. disk number four, but the mm-hmm. next pass is on a different disk and a different disk. Oh, so, so it lets that, them continue to chew on it, so that way they're not getting hit up, they're not hitting like bottlenecks on the I.O. Right, so, you're, you, so it's not one disk that's always getting the parity, right. so that, oh, yeah, that too. Where, you're, where you're doing the parity calculation okay. is spread out, okay. so that you have more even performance. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that was why RAID 4 isn't used, because in RAID 4 you put all the parity information on one disk. So that one disk is always going to take longer because it has more complicated math to do. Instead yeah. of just writing the data down, it has to calculate this chum and do it all and then write it down. Right. Hmm. And so, and the problem with that is if you're writing a lot of data at once, you don't want that drive to get behind. So no, by spreading it out, on it. Yeah. So by spreading it out like RAID 5 does, you get better performance. Yeah, absolutely. The other advantage with RAID 5 is your total size of your logical disk is however many disks you have minus one times the size of the smallest one. So you lose one disk to parity. Yes. Unlike mirroring, uh, where you would lose half the disks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get the fault tolerance you would get from mirroring, the ability to lose one drive without the array being deleted. And so just... if you have three drives, you essentially get the storage capacity of two drives. And if you have five, then you get four. And so right. On. It's easy math to kind of do in your head so you yeah. know, all right, well, if I, want, if, I want to have two, if I want to have a terabyte of storage, I need to buy three 500 gigabyte drives or right. something like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that would work. Okay. and if you want two terabytes, then you need five 500 gigabyte drives. Right, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was just working on a machine on uh, Monday, I think, that has, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Ecologics box, I think it has 16 drives in it, and they're these SAS drives, they're like laptop hard drives, but they're built for servers, and yep. uh, you just, it's just loaded full of them, and they're all in different types of RAID setups, and it's pretty yep. intense. And all, a lot of these are designed where you can pop the drive out in real time on a server system. Yes. So you don't, sh- you don't have to shut the system down. You just walk nope. up to it, hit the little thing, and whoop, now I try to avoid doing yep. that, but <laughs> it can yeah. do it. But, and see, what happens is uh, when one of those disks is broken, uh, the RAID array runs what's called degraded mode, right. where it's, it's doing the math to figure out what's supposed to be on that disk because that disk isn't available, mm-hmm. either because it's broken or because you've pulled it out or whatever. And then when you put in uh, a fresh disk or put the disk back in, it resilvers and basically gets it back to what it's supposed to contain. Right. 
So RAID 5 is typically used in servers uh, where you need a large amount of, of storage and performance, but you, don't, you, you need some fault tolerance as well. Mm-hmm. So you get the speed of striping and the fault tolerance of, of basically mirroring. Not I, quite as good as mirroring because you don't have a, a duplicate of every single drive, right. but you do have enough that if one drive dies, you're still going to be okay. As so, long as you replace that drive before another drive dies. Is it just me or does it seem like really we got to RAID 5 and we kind of stood there for a few years and people were like, all right, well, RAID 5 is good, RAID 5 is good. But then it seems like all these different RAID technologies just took off. I don't know. I, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, with, the problem with RAID 5 is if two of those disks die, then you lose everything. Ah. So, say disk one dies and you, even if you replace it in time and while it's resilvering and repopulating uh, all the data on that disk... Mm-hmm. If then d- disk two dies, your entire array is gone. All your data is gone. Yes. <laughs> so if you had a bad day and you lose two drives. Yeah. And if all your drives are identical, which is the typical configuration, there's a higher chance that if one of the disks dies, then one of its identical brothers is going to die too. Mm-hmm. Or very soon, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's where RAID 6 comes in. Oh, RAID 6, okay. So what RAID 6 is, is just RAID 5, except for there are two copies of the parity. There we go. Now we're talking. So uh, your usable size, your logical disk, is the number of disks minus two times the size of the smallest one. Right, because you have to accommodate for losing two drives. So in this case, they have five disks, and you get the storage capacity of three. Wow, huh? How about that? Does that blow your mind? Think about that. And and these drives are not cheap generally either. No. Uh, Although if you're using fancy RAID to get more performance, you sometimes can get away with cheaper disks. But usually if you need it, you're not. You're doing mm-hmm. the most expensive disks with this technology to make it even faster. Yeah. <laughs> so with RAID 6, again, it's the same as RAID 5, except you have two parodies, and they're spread around, again, on purpose. Mm. And so this way, even if disk 1 dies, and you, while you're replacing it, disk 3 dies as well, uh, you can still figure out what was on uh, both of those disks and get them back up and working. Jaron's asking how long it usually takes to resilver a hard drive, but that really depends that on the depends size. That depends on the size of the disk and uh, how busy the RAID array is and how good the controller is. And yeah, yeah. But if you're reading and writing to the array a lot while it's trying to do it, those, the disks that contain the bits it needs to calculate the parity mm-hmm. take longer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if the system's offline, then it's usually fairly quick because you're yeah. just basically filling up the hard drive. Some of but these, it's well, a under- lot of these RAID controllers have like um, uh, RAM on them, like actual yeah. RAM on them that they will yeah, cache typical, to first to try to speed yeah, things up. A typical up. controller has 256 or 512 megabytes of really fast DDR3 RAM on yeah. the controller to, to buffer stuff uh, and, and to basically to supplement the usually 32 megabyte buffer on the hard drives. And then also uh, a lot of times... And they'll, they'll have, have a battery backup. Yeah. So that way if so the that, server loses power, they can, can finish writing and... and they have and, enough time. They, they can keep the data alive long enough to write, finish writing it to the disks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. It's cool. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt RAID 6. Yeah, so in RAID 6, if any two disks die, you're still okay. If a third one dies, then you're out of luck. But mm-hmm. then you've lost more than half your disks already, so yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to be in trouble anyway. You probably just had an earthquake. <laughs> Maybe a tsunami came in and destroyed all your data. Yeah. And so RAID 6 is typically used in servers where you need uh, you know, lots of storage and lots of performance, but you also need that critical fault tolerance. Right, absolutely. And uh, RAID 6 also requires uh, rather expensive hardware controllers. Mm-hmm. Most onboard controllers can't do RAID 5 because that parity calculation is a lot of work. And mm-hmm. like you said, you know, that's up to your CPU if it's an onboard controller. 
Uh, and so RAID 6 is usually just right out unless you have an expensive controller card. Right. Yeah, one that you probably get with a whole and server setup. because you're losing money. two disks, usually it only happens when you have a lot of disks, right? There's not much sense to use uh, RAID 6 if you only have four hard drives. Right, right. Because then you'd be better just doing mirroring, right? So mm-hmm. you'd have, because you would get the same capacity and uh, less work. Yeah, yeah. So if we're not going to do RAID 6, what's after RAID 6? Because I thought, I thought it stopped at 5, Alan. How's this work? Uh, well, no, uh, RAID 6 is, is where it stops. Now, oh, okay. But there are more complex controllers that can do what are called nested levels of RAID. Mm, right. Yes. Uh, so the first example of that is RAID 0 plus 1. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also RAID 1 plus 0, but they're basically the same idea. And okay. so basically what this means is... Uh, do you have the diagram? I do. There it is. Uh, you're doing a RAID 1, which is mirroring, across two RAID 0 arrays. So you have a RAID 0... Your RAID 0 arrays provide you with the high performance... And then you're doing RAID 1 across them, or mirroring, so that you still get the fault tolerance. So uh, you get the fault tolerance, but you also get even more read speed. I love Right, Because RAID 1 provides you the extra read speed, right. and RAID 0 provides extra read speed. Yeah. So basically, when you're reading, you're using all six disks at once. Oh, man. But you, get, you don't lose as much capacity as you would if you just did RAID 1 for this. Mm-hmm. So you gain extra write performance and double extra read performance. This is great, and this is this is the setup that I've used on like that Ecologics box and the EMC boxes yeah. uh, for VMs. It's great yeah. for VM hosting. But again, you're only getting half of the storage capacity. Yeah, you pay for it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, now, RAID 50 and RAID 60 are even more complicated. Oh, my goodness. I've got them ready. Uh, I've got the yep. diagrams ready. Yep. So with RAID 50 and 60, basically what you're doing is RAID 0, which is striping, across uh, two or more arrays of RAID 5 or 6. <laughs> so you have your RAID 5 array for your t- fault tolerance and it's already striping and then you're striping across multiple RAID 5 arrays this is so baller I gotta say I love this or again you can do this with RAID 6 for uh, additional um, fault tolerance now uh, one of the other reasons why this kind of setup is more common than you would think right? because you could just do this with one really big RAID 5 array uh, but sometimes when each of your controller cards only has so many drive uh, ports. But also, if you're doing fault tolerance, you have to consider one of your RAID, your RAID controller cards dying. Mm, true. And Maybe. so by using RAID 50 or RAID 51, uh, RAID 51 would be mirroring a bunch of RAID 5 arrays, uh, but basically using each of these RAID 5 arrays would be on a separate controller, which would then be working together in a RAID 0 array. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is... Uh this is a really great, this is a really, I, Alan, I had completely forgotten about how fundamental it was when we were designing some storage systems, how we went full out. We thought of, you know, the dual, the redundant power, and you had to consider controller failure, too, because, yep. uh, you know, it's not just drives that fail. It's the actual yeah. components well, of the server, too. You know, there's components of any kind of thing can fail. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that's hard, a hard one to work around unless you're doing, but if it's, you know, absolutely imperative that machines stay up no matter what then you'd want to do something like RAID 51, or if it's that important, RAID 61, where it'd be a mirror across multiple separate RAID 6 arrays. Right. Wow. Or you can get into more complicated things like having multiple replicated SANs. Yes. So you have physical, separately physical machines uh, with different arrays in them. But I, uh, and I've also experimented with things like using the uh, Linux DRDB system where mm-hmm. I, you know, I have a mirrored drive on a server and then I have a duplicate server that's it's hot standby that has a mirrored drive 
And yep. I just use DRDB to just replicate data between them all the time. So if the drive fails, I have a, just a hot standby entire server that I fire up. And exactly. Uh, there's a similar system under FreeBSD called HAST, H-A-S-T. Mm. Okay. And I kind of find that in... in and I, I kind of find with virtualization and, and, and being able to move equipment around so much that almost that approach now is becoming more important than centralized storage. Yep. But when you need a lot of storage and you want... But, and, you know, a lot of the ability to move physical, uh, to move virtual machines between physical machines usually relies on having external right. storage. Right. And that external storage is going to have uh, things have like... Requ- yeah. It's going to be uh, something to have RAID 50 or 60, right? mm-hmm. or RAID 5 or 6 at least. Probably implemented at the hardware level, so you don't yep. really... And that, most of the time, in the real-world implementation, when you really see these kinds of things, you generally are setting this stuff with some sort of a hardware controller, and then you're attaching it to the, to the operating system, and it just shows up as a single disk or whatever you have yep. it provisioned as to the yep. operating system. So it doesn't, you know, it's not, like, it's not like Windows or Linux is necessarily aware of all of this configuration, and that's good, because then the operating right. system just writes to it like a storage device. Yeah, and, and the controller can decide how it wants to lay it out on the disks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it, and it's using the hardware accelerated math for figuring yep. out all of that, so it's, exactly. it doesn't put the impact of perf- the performance impact on your on your own server. But that's you know, like you said, that, that's that's thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, yep. In a little bit in the Linux Action Show, we're going to talk about how to do something like this under Linux using software. But yep. I don't know. I got to I got I guess I'll I'll talk about it more in Linux Action Show. But I I'm still a fan of implementing all these kinds of things in hardware whenever possible. Yes, but if it's just for your home server. You may not, and if you just yeah. want to experiment with it, yep, it's it's not necessary to go out and buy a really expensive. Yeah, the stakes aren't as high then. Exactly, you know, it's not your job on the line. <laughs> yeah, when it's the job on the line, it might go hardware. Exactly. Hmm. So uh, we don't have diagrams for RAID sixty-one and, and RAID fifty-one, but how would they differ from what we're seeing here necessarily? Uh, basically, instead of a, a RAID zero at the top, it uh-huh. would be a RAID one. Oh, okay. So you'd be mirroring. So uh, you would lose a lot of capacity there. In this right. case, you have nine drives. And you're getting the capacity of six. Wow. How about uh, that? If you did RAID 1 on that, you would have nine drives and you get the capacity of two. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> That'd be a big loss. Yeah, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah, um, but with that RAID array there, you're getting huge performance because you have these RAID 5 arrays, which are already giving you uh, decent striping performance, mm-hmm. and then you're striping across three of those. Mm-hmm. You're going to mm-hmm. get some pretty sick performance. <laughs> you know, if you if if just for simple math, you assume each of those disks can handle 100 megabytes a second. Uh huh. Then oh, you have 600 megabytes a second of write speed oh. there. SSDs now, of course, that's more expensive than SSD, but you see, you can do it. You can get that fast with traditional drives. It's true. Yes. Uh, now I've seen a review somewhere where they were pitting 16 10,000 RPM SAS drives across two separate uh, RAID controllers. Versus like a pair of SSDs. Oh, really? Or or maybe it was even just one SSD. It's like how many physical, how big a RAID array do you need to compete with one SSD? It, it you know, I've done some testing here just for video editing purposes, and I've replaced. Uh, I I used to get this. Oh, I wish I had it right next to me. I used to. I had this little GTEC little FireWire 800 external unit that had two uh, laptop hard drives in it. And it, it could push, you know, a pretty, it could basically max out the FireWire 800 connection. So like, I don't know, 60 megs a second or whatever that is. Yep. Um, and replacing that, replacing those units with two little drives in there with a total terabyte of, terabyte of storage, replacing that with one SSD is, you know, it's a phenomenal speed difference. Even yep. though SSD is not great at just streaming a single file, it's more good at random yep. access, it's still for video editing purposes. So I've got to imagine soon for server purposes for maybe for databases and things like yep. that it could be huge and uh, when we talk about zfs we can talk a bit about uh 
having a hybrid system where you have a bunch of your physical disks or your regular spinning disks for storage, but then with a, uh, a ZIL, uh, a, a ZFS intent log that's on a SSD. So as the data oh. comes in to be written, it gets buffered to the SSD yeah. and then written in a more streamlined fashion to the spinning disks. A, a sort so of modern-day version of what we were just saying those controller cards have RAM on them for. Yes. Right? Yeah, hmm. except for, you know... With other purposes, uh, too. With more capacity. Yeah. And, you know, instead of 512 megabytes of RAM, you're talking like a 32 gig or a 128 gig and, SSD. And really, the complete transaction log is more valuable to have, too. So, yeah, yeah that's, exactly. that's a pretty good system. Uh, any other thoughts on RAID? Uh, no, I think that's about all we can cover this week. So the second clip we had uh, is the build of my first ZFS server. All right? Now, uh, this is 10 episodes after the Ultimate yeah. Raid episode. Yeah. So what? that's like three months later. Give me a break. No, no, I know. No, yeah. I'm just yeah. But yeah, so uh, Scale Engine is growing, and it's... Uh, at this point, we still... I don't think we're actually doing video yet. Or... Videos were stored on the actual video servers, not yeah, in our okay. central storage yet, something like yeah. that. So we're building our first server, and we're like, oh, we need lots of space. So we build a 16-terabyte SAS array, uh, which is, you know, uh, eight two-terabyte drives and uh, in uh, RAID Z2, so we get 12 terabytes of usable space. But back then, I still I did two separate two-terabyte SATA drives that would mirror with UFS for the operating system because I didn't trust booting off ZFS yet. Uh-huh. It was still a relatively new feature in right. FreeBSD, right? And yeah, <laughs> uh, you can. I have my parts list and pictures and so on. And I spent money on a RAID controller with like a battery backup. Yeah, I remember that. And I was like, uh, and then and then that RAID controller didn't work properly. It mm-hmm. says it worked for FreeBSD on the box, but mm-hmm. it only worked for FreeBSD eight. Mm-hmm. And I wanted nine because ZFS got all these new features in nine. Mm-hmm. And they weren't in eight. And then I tried to make the driver work, and it kind of worked, but then it would hang and cause all kinds of problems. And uh, when I bought it, the motherboard had uh, an LSI controller built in, but it wasn't on the list of things that were supported yet. But it turns out it was supported in nine. So eventually, I did something you can't do with regular RAID, which was unplug the SAS cable out of the Adaptec card that wasn't working. Right. Plug it into the LSI card, and the drives just showed up and worked. Once I did the RAID configuration, uh, or told the LSI controller to to not basically, uh, whereas you know you can't just pull a bunch of disks out of an adaptive card <laughs> and put them in on an LSI card and expect it to work. Uh-huh. But with ZFS, the whole point is disks are portable, even between machines of different endianness. You can even go take all this stuff out of your little endian machine and plug it mm-hmm. in a big endian machine, mm-hmm. and it'll work because mm-hmm. Sun had. You know, spark boxes that were one yeah, way, right? And the regular x86 boxes that weren't, that or were the sense. other way, and needed. They were like, we want a file system where I can just move my disk back and forth and be happy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is the fact that I wish I knew about IX back then. Mm. <laughs> the amount of hassle I went through to build that, to <laughs> order the parts from Newegg, get them imported into Canada, and then they would only ship it to my business partner's address, not my address, because that was the one on our corporate credit card. Oh yeah, and sure, all of course. This, and then and then things not working and not knowing what I was doing. It's like, it, ah, I wish somebody told me about IX back then. There you go. But luckily I know about them now, and that's where I buy all the servers now. And yeah. it's so much easier. <laughs> I'll never go back to doing it the other way. So uh, just bear all of that in mind when you watch uh, these next couple of episodes. We've been talking about this for the last few episodes. Alan's building this massive storage box uh, mm-hmm. for a scale engine. Alan, what was the total storage you have on this thing now? Uh, it's got eight 
two terabyte SAS drives in RAID Z2, which is like RAID 6, so double redundancy. So you get six times two terabytes, so 12 terabytes of usable storage. Nice, nice. And uh, you went with uh, the first question we had here was what OS did you go with? And you went with FreeBSD because yeah. you love yeah, FreeBSD. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, that was never going to be the question. The question <laughs> was, would I go with 8.2 or 9? And I went with the 9.0 release candidate 2, uh, even though 9 is not actually out yet, uh, because uh, it includes a much newer version of the ZFS system. And that was so important to you that that yes. feature, that new v- version of ZFS was in there, that you went yeah. with a release candidate OS. Yeah, uh, well, the machine won't be in that big a production until the release comes out uh, in a couple of weeks anyway. And is it really that much effort to go to the final? No, it's actually a lot easier to go from the release candidate to the final. Uh, and more importantly, in the future, to go from 9.0 to 9.1 is a lot easier than uh, when you jump between the big version numbers. It's all kinds of complicated. So that led to the next question in the chat room, which was, yeah. which version of ZFS did you go with and why? Yeah, so I went with uh, the one that comes with... Uh, FreeBSD 9, which is uh, ZPool 28 uh, and ZFS 5. And so ZPool 21 is when they introduced deduplication. And then uh, since then, there have been a bunch of other features. And basically, if I went with 8.2, I only got ZPool 15, which is significantly older. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that deduplication feature, should you're hoping as customers start loading files on there and things like that, yeah, will sort like, of save you, you know, bandwidth. Right, or hundred copies of WordPress. Then, yeah, uh, exactly. Right. Yeah, because yeah. if everybody has ten, if you have ten customers that have the exact same version of WordPress, would it just then just use one version of their file until they altered it? That's Basically. pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. Okay, so what kind of throughput are you getting on this thing? Yeah, that was a big question. So when I did sequential read and write, I get over six hundred megabytes per second. <laughs> oh boy! Well, that makes sense because you're getting the speed of six of the drives, and each of them. Uh, when I tested them individually, they got up at the very beginning of the drive, which is the fastest part, they got up to 150 megabytes per second sequential. Yeah, but your average, say, like your average HP desktop that you buy from Costco is probably maxing out at 60 megabytes a second transfer rate yeah. from its drive, and you're getting 600. Yeah. That's sweet. So, so uh, one of the tests I did was write out a 16 gigabyte file to the disk, uh, to the array. And that took under 27 seconds. Oh, man. And I love the getting video files I have around here. I would love that. Uh, more importantly, though, when I read it back immediately after, it took 2.8 seconds, which is over 6 gigabytes per second. And that's, uh, that's actually not off the disks. It's because uh, ZFS uses the ARC, Adaptive Replacement Cache, mm. uh, which is an IBM invention that goes beyond our normal cache, which is usually least recently used. So, you know, when your cache is full, it takes the thing that was least recently used, gets rid of it to make room for something that's being used now. That's slick. With the adaptive replacement cache, it does that, it's, but it keeps yep. four lists, and it gets a lot more complicated. And it's, it doesn't, it store in, uh, doesn't it store in a, like a faster location, too, like memory? Yeah, so or the, a- the ZFS ARC is in RAM. That's why this machine has 48 gigabytes of RAM. And that's where that six gigabytes per second came from. I had a total Easter egg moment. There's a total Easter egg moment in here for the people watching the video version of TechSnap right now. Uh, that's, I love that. And, I, and so ZFS can have uh, the L2 ARC, which would be like an SSD you would have that would provide an additional cache to store even more data, especially if you're doing deduplication where you need more uh, oh. power to hold it all, yeah. especially if you're dealing with like terabytes and terabytes of information. Right. We're not really that big on the deduplication feature, uh, so we're not that worried about it. 
Now, I love all that, but you, 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 uh, you had an interesting question come out of the chat room that really is kind of important. You've got to have good power going into these things. And so the chat room said, okay, what do you have for power supplies in this thing, and, and why did you pick them? Uh, well, they came with the chassis. We bought a super micro high-end server chassis, and they came with redundant 920-watt uh, platinum levels power supplies, which are 94% efficient or better. Man, now, uh, so the main thing there is like your average PC power supply is like 50% efficient. So it means 50% of the power it draws in is wasted as heat during the conversion from AC to DC. I've noticed, I've been looking at, uh, we've got uh, some photos here of uh, the part of the server build. And one of the things that I noticed here, Alan, is there are a ton of memory slots on this motherboard. There are nine for each processor, 18 in total. Uh, each one can support up to a 16-gigabyte stick of DDR3 ECC registered RAM. Uh, I used uh, six sticks of 8 gigabytes to give me 48 gigabytes of RAM. So, but How in total, the server, I have 48 gigs of RAM, but the server, <laughs> the server can support up to 288 gigs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that. And I thought I was rocking it with 12 gigs of RAM, and you're coming in here with a box that has 48 yeah. gigs. Now, but is that also, because of the, the cache? Supplies, uh, we also, the power supplies are actually connected to special uh, APC PDUs, power distribution units. They're kind of like they're rack-type power bars that have a web interface where I can turn each port on and off remotely. So they're providing remote reboot capabilities on the machine. Uh, now, the ZFS machine doesn't need that because it has uh, IPMI, uh, independent yeah. machine management, uh, but uh, a bunch of our other servers don't have that, and so remote reboot is a great thing to have. Oh, for up- boy, yeah, especially when you can physically, you know, you, or even, even when the operating system is down, but you can still either through the interface or through a physical power button be able to reboot it is so yeah. nice in the data center when you're X amount of miles away. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this Adaptec RAID controller, and then I have one last question I want to get to from the chat room. But the chat room said, what RAID controller did you use? I know you got a special one. And yep. it was, if I recall right, it had like a solid-state storage, but not the kind that yes. would get wiped when the card was powered right. off. So uh, we chose an Adaptec 6805 controller, which, does, which has eight ports, basically. Uh, and the one, the, one of the main things it has is, instead of a regular RAID controller, has a battery for backup, so that when the... Um, if the server loses power for whatever reason, it keeps the, mem- the data that's in the RAM on the controller from being lost. So our controller has 512 megabytes of RAM. It actually has like a stick of DDR RAM on it mm-hmm. where it has half a gig of, of cache. So if the power suddenly goes out, all the data that's in that cache hasn't been written to the disks yet and would be lost. And that'd be bad. Right, that's usually what would happen. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's why RAID controllers have a battery. Now, normally it's like a regular lithium, lithium-ion battery like you have in a laptop. Yeah. Uh, and that dies. After a while, for, it dies. Yeah, it provides enough power to keep that RAM on for three days. But if, you know, if for some reason your server's down for more than three days, then that data's lost anyway. Or if the server's just a few years old because that battery yes. is living in a hot environment its entire yep. lifetime. So and it's it constantly charging and discharging, so... Yeah. It wears out, and mm-hmm. the thing is to replace that battery, you usually have to shut down the server. Yes. It's like, why did I spend all this money on a hot spot? Redundant power supplies that can be swapped without turning off the server. Redundant hard drives can be swapped without turning off the server. And if you don't replace the battery and it is going low, it complains at you every time you reboot the server, and it beeps yep. at you and tells you that you're a loser. So. Yeah. And it won't protect you if the right. power goes. Also. So the problem there is it causes you maintenance headaches. So 
Adaptech has this new one. It's called the Zero Maintenance Module. And what it is, is it's a supercapacitor and four gigabytes of manned flash. A capacitor and flash in one little unit. So they, yeah. they charge up that capacitor, and then that capacitor just slowly keeps the flash alive for, do yes. you know, for how long? Um, not very long, but it doesn't need to be very long. So what happens is when the power goes out, that capacitor has, is maintaining its charge, right? So the power goes out, and so it's starting to discharge. And what happens is that 512 megabytes of data that was in the buffer on the RAM mm-hmm. is written to the 4 gigabytes of flash of course. in the module uh, in a couple of seconds because it's only half a gigabyte and flash is really fast, right, because it's solid state and it's sequential. Uh, so it writes it down, and then it can power off, and it can stay off forever. And when you power it back up, it can read in the... F- uh, data off the, the flash. flash and write it out to the hard drive safely. That's pretty slick. I like that. Yeah. I, I think my next server build, when I put a, uh, a RAID control in there, it would, I, I've got to go with something like that. Now, you paid extra for that feature, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the card doesn't come with that, and then it's like an extra $190 for the, uh, that piece. As, there's a little circuit board uh, connected by a cable to that black module there, and that circuit board kind of clips into the RAID card. Yeah. No, one uh, more question we had. Or, or, well, there's a little bit more on this one. Uh, when we were picking out uh, the RAID cards, we kind of had a choice of a couple different ones and <laughs> chose the Adaptech one because it had FreeBSD drivers. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, you know, that's an important feature for us. Especially uh, since your server runs FreeBSD. Yeah. Uh, now, it turns out this card isn't supported by the built-in FreeBSD driver because uh, it's slightly newer. Oh, Almost yeah. all the older ones are. Uh, but they do provide the driver on the disk, a, a FreeBSD driver that does work for the card. And they provide it pre-compiled and ready to go for version 6, 7, and 8 in i386 and AMD64. But not 9, because 9 is not out yet. Using 9, right. Yeah, so 9 is not out yet, so they don't have a pre... Luckily, they also include the source code for the driver. Oh, cool. And a uh, little bit of hackery by myself, because uh, they, don't, <laughs> they don't actually provide... They give you the source code, but they don't provide a make file or anything. Sure. Uh, but I was managed to compile it as a kernel module loaded into my kernel. Dude, that's hardcore. That is yeah. hardcore. That's, well, the, that's the frosting on top of the hardcore. It, it would have right been fairly trivial to do, but the built-in Adaptech driver is compiled into the kernel, not a module. So the name's conflicted. So I had to... A little said magic on the, um, all the source files to rename the driver with an extra letter after it so that it wouldn't conflict. No, it wouldn't conflict, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So instead of a regular ACC driver, we have ACCS for scale engine. <laughs> nice. All right. So uh, the, last, the last question in the chat room, that I, at least that I caught so far, was after doing this, now, of course, this would be a smaller scale thing, but would you recommend people launch out and build their own file servers, maybe especially for home, or do you think after all this was said and done, would you say it was probably better to just buy something prepackaged and save yourself the time of assembly? Well, I was kind of middle ground here because I bought a bare-bones server. So okay. the Super Micro chassis came with, you know, the hot swappable drives in it with the trays. The, the trays were empty, but they didn't have the drives in them yet. But, uh, and they were all pre-cabled into the motherboard's oh, uh, boy, RAID nice. controller. Uh, so it was all pre-cabled very nicely, actually, into the uh, motherboard's RAID driver, except for that RAID controller didn't work with FreeBSD. Of course, it actually turns out that it does work with 9, <laughs> the but, one built into the motherboard does work with nine. Yeah, but it doesn't with eight, and so. Yeah. <laughs> Go but figure. anyway, um, so it was all pre-cabled and ready to go. So basically, while I built it myself, I didn't really have to do anything. I dropped the CPUs in, 
screwed oh, on the nice. the uh, the heat sinks that came with the case because mm-hmm. uh, a server processors don't come with a heat sink like a desktop processor does, and b you need a special one to fit in a small case right because it's rack mountable right uh, and then stick in some RAM, stick in the hard drives, and it was good to go. I had to do a bit of recabling for these all the SATA cables because they're a ridiculous amount. Well, no, because I was using the uh, an external RAID controller instead of the one built into the motherboard. And Supermicro, when they built the chassis, they custom cut every SATA cable exactly the length for airflow reasons, right? So there was no excess cable anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so it wouldn't reach the extra, like, four inches to the... you got to give the them credit for good card. intention there, but, like, yes. in the actual practical use, it didn't work out. Well, no, but I just pulled their cable out and put in the ones I bought. Yeah. It was not a big deal. That's nice uh, when they pre-plumb it like that for you. Yes, yeah, so basically it was all ready to go. So it was almost as if I had bought it from a Dell, except for if I bought a Dell or whatever, the hard drives would have been already installed too. And it would have charged me a lot more money for the RAM. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other nice thing was I know, this chassis, uh, almost everything is hot swappable, including the fans. Do you have that oh, picture of the I fans? I love that. Yeah, here, I'll dig for that because I do have that here. So the fans are in those little plastic modules, and they got uh, tabs you pull on. And it comes out, and so it's got the power connector and the RPM monitor and everything for the fans. And you can, there's four fans, and you can just pull them out. I love that. You know, place uh, them when they die. This is this is more common, right, on uh, like HP and Dell and IBM servers, yeah. but not so more not so common on the uh, build-it-yourself bare-bones system. So this is nice yeah, seeing so them add this feature. Of, yeah. So this is Supermicro is kind of providing that middle ground. It lets you build it yourself, but you get all the pro features. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like, if, you're, uh, if you're looking at the video version, we're looking at a top-down version of it, and the black part in the middle of the screen is the fan, and then there's two little clips, and you just pinch those clips in, and it comes out. So they must have, like, maybe, like, what little copper contacts on there for power or something well, like it's that? Well, it looks kind of like the, the, re- it's the regular fan connector, and it's mounted and clipped into the plastic part. Oh, really? It slides into a receptor, and it powers the fan. It still uses a Molex collector. So you could, yeah. use, you could use any fan you want, then. You don't have to use one of their fans. Well, uh Pretty much, yeah. It's it's the it's not the Molex connector. It's the it's the motherboard header type connector that oh, okay. is the RPM rating. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And each of those fans, uh, by default, spins at it, on balance mode. They run at four thousand RPM until the temperature gets too high, oh, and okay. then they go higher. Yeah, uh, I'm on performance mode, so mine are doing <laughs> five thousand RPM. But if when the machine's first booting up, uh, before the OS, before the motherboard is fully initialized, sounds like a jet. Yeah, because the it hasn't had a chance to read the temperature sensors yet. The fans literally, like, at five thousand RPM, they're screaming. Yeah. So when they when they boot up to like, I don't know how high they go, but really much faster than that. It's like my God, that's noisy. Probably eight thousand RPM or something. Nuts yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah, boy, that sounds fun though, Alan. Man, and it has a nice build the, one. the back plane for so the hot swappable drives connect to a back plane that has separate power connectors and. Uh, side channel connectors that let you can have all the lights and everything. And yeah. It's all very fancy. Now, so it sounds like your needs were kind of specialized. Yeah. So you're, uh, but if, if you go this, if you go this bare bones route, then you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. So you're kind of recommending maybe right. look into that. And Supermicro was the vendor you went with for the yes. chassis. Um, and that came with the motherboard too? Yeah. So uh, they sell just chassis and just motherboards, but I bought the bare bones kit, which is the motherboard uh, fitted with the chassis. And uh, and, and the you, power supplies. You just bring your own. You bring your own memory and processor and anything else. Yeah, basically. There you go. Before we go any further, I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of the TechSnap program. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code of Absolute Power and Network Domination, Snap Ocean. It'll give you 
a $10 credit. And that's going to become extremely relevant in mere moments. Let me tell you first about DigitalOcean. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own rig up in their infrastructure. All SSDs, tier one data centers, 40 gigabit E connections to the hypervisors. I'm loving it. And you get started in less than 55 seconds. Their pricing plans start only $5 a month. You get $5, you get a terabyte of bandwidth. Which is nuts. It's nuts to my face. It's nuts to my face. And you also get 512 megs of RAM, a 20 gigabit or gigabyte SSDs because they all SSDs. And, of course, a CPU. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, brand new one up in Toronto. But it's that interface. That interface is so good. And they have a great API. Yeah, and it, it's really like great features that you would have to have in the past had super clunky software to manage. Boom! I love or, it. Or they have the new feature, the floating IPs. We just used that last week's episode to solve a user's problem, and there's really no other way to do it. Like if they hadn't introduced that feature, you would just not be able to do it. It's pretty neat. And Snap Ocean will give you a ten dollar credit to try it out. DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring. The Tech Snap program. Also, rumor has it, Alan, I don't know if you can confirm this, they may have free BSD servers you can deploy as well. I think that's probably yep. false. No, no. They have pre-built free Son of a gun. Just, just wham. Who knew? Who knew? Me. Maybe I did, actually. <laughs> Maybe I actually already knew. Uh, all right. So I noticed that uh, one of your favorite episodes was back in 78 when we did a little wire shock. Wire shark. <laughs> wire shock. Well, that was, that was the title of the episode. But uh, oh, okay. Specific, the clip we're going to uh, show here is... Now that chip and pin uh, credit cards and so on are, are coming in the U.S., yeah, right? Yeah. They're supposed to be here by now. I just got a uh, notice about it, actually, from my yeah. bank. We remember back to TechSnap from September of 2012 Ooh. when we uh, get research uh, from the University of Cambridge. Uh, it's interesting. I actually met these people when I was uh, went to Cambridge uh, last year. Um, and they did some research into ways to uh, get around the chip and pin system. Hmm. In particular... There was a guy who um, the bank claimed that the money taken out of his account had to have been done by him with his PIN number because he had a chip and PIN card. But money was taken out of an ATM in one country while he was in a different country. He was on a holiday or hmm, something. Suspicious somebody much? used a clone of his credit card to take money out of a cash machine. And he's like, well, while you say it's not possible for them to have done it without my PIN number and my card – I had my card and I was on holiday and on an island somewhere. <laughs> There's no way. And so the researchers were like, hmm, let's see how possible it is to actually get around this. And so they did the research into it and it turns out uh, it's not necessarily the EMV system itself that was a problem, but the implementation. Uh, so the cash machines are supposed to use an ounce or this unique, random, unpredictable value. And they were just using a counter or a timestamp. In the one example, it was a timestamp that's just like uh, rolls over every three minutes. So if they if you skim the card or whatever, and you just wait for the right timing to do the transaction, and once every three minutes you can access the person's account without the PIN number. Mm-hmm. So how quickly do you think firmware on ATMs gets updated? <laughs> I, uh, from my experience, very very slowly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, check out the clip. It's quite good. Uh, the chip and pin uh, security system used for credit cards, especially in the UK where it was rolled out about 10 years ago, but is uh, become uh, pretty prominent in Canada and is starting to be deployed in the US as well. Uh, there's yet another security flaw found in it by <laughs> some researchers at Cambridge University. Okay. Uh, so the, the chip and pin 
technology basically replaces your traditional uh, magnetic stripe and signature method for uh, authorizing your credit card, right? So uh, on your credit card, you got this little, what looks like a chip. Now, the chip's actually smaller than that. That's just the, the contacts for it. But, yeah. Uh, so basically, instead of swiping your card and then signing a little piece of paper to authorize the transaction, uh, you stick your card in the machine, it interfaces with the chip, and you use a PIN number to authorize the transaction. Uh, more like a, a debit card was in Canada, although I think debit cards worked a little different in the States. Okay. But basically, instead of using the magnetic strip, it uses the chip, and uh, the chip does some other stuff on, uh, to make sure the card is real. Right, uh, you know, before, you know, merchants would like hold up your card and check for the hologram on the back to make sure it wasn't fake. Uh, in this case, the chip does some of the authentication so that the terminal can tell if this has been a clone, if this card's a clone or an original card, and so on. Hmm. Uh, so that, yeah, so the technology uses the chip embedded in the card to authenticate itself to the point of sales terminal or the ATM, uh, and then also to do, handle the uh, PIN, uh, especially for load-value transactions, rather than going all the way back to the bank to check the PIN number. Uh, the PIN number is checked by the chip and then just sends a success or fail type signal to the terminal. Gotcha. Hmm. Uh, so this provides stronger authentication of the cardholder. In addition, so in addition to the chip proving to the point-of-sales terminal that the card isn't a forgery or a clone card, Right, because if we remember a little bit a while back, they were remember they were uh, forging the gift cards, buying ten dollar ones and then turning them into hundred dollar ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the chip on the card basically prevents that uh, by answering a cryptographic check. Uh, but the other thing it does is provides th- uh, stronger authentication of the card holder. So now that the chip ensures that the card is real, instead of just you signing a piece of paper and the merchant maybe checks your signature versus the one on the back of the card, mm-hmm. which really doesn't provide any uh, extra protection at all. It, uh, instead, you enter a PIN number to verify your identity, which is much more secure, right? Uh, the original idea the banks had behind this was what they called a liability shift. Uh, so basically <laughs> what they were saying that was... lovely. <laughs> Well, you just wait till you hear what it is. The idea is that fraudulent transactions, uh, if the pin was used, would then become the fault of the cardholder. Right? Uh-huh. If, because if somebody entered the pin, either it was you and you're lying, or you gave away your pin number. Either way, you don't get your money back from the credit card company. Right. That's probably something they're desperately trying to get away from because that's a huge cost yeah, for them. Yeah, right now, most times in a fraud instance like that, well, honestly, uh, yeah, sometimes the banks are liable, but a lot of times they just pull the money back from the merchant. Mm, okay. Right? So if it's an ATM transaction, then yes, the bank has to pay out. Uh, but if it's an in-store transaction, then the, um, the store loses the money rather than the bank. Uh, but the basic idea here was that the bank was trying to shift all the liability off them and onto the customer or the merchant. It says either the merchant didn't have a machine that could check the chip, or the user entered the PIN uh, with the chip, and they're liable. So the idea was that the banks would then not have to take all these losses. Uh, but the problem is that there's a flaw with the way the chip and PIN system works, uh, where people were able to run transactions and still create fraud. <laughs> 
So uh, the liability shift didn't quite kick in the same as they were hoping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, surprise, uh, surprise. Part of the reason was because of an attack discovered in 2010 uh, where basically by having a fake card connected to a real card, when you run the fake card through your the point-of-sales terminal or whatever, the fake card falsely reports that it doesn't support a PIN transaction, and then it, it goes through. Uh, so it basically, it acts as a man in the middle for an attack against the card, where it changes the request coming from the terminal before it gets to the card, uh. and then the card authorizes it with the chip and sends it back. And basically what it allowed was if you could hide the fact that you're using one card that was wired to a second card, you could then do a pin transaction and then enter 0000 as the pin and it would work. Uh, And then the bank, the problem was that the bank would go back to the person whose card was stolen and say, well, they used your pin, so you don't get your money back. But even though they weren't actually using the pin. Uh, And then... The story today is about a new attack that was published. It's called the preplay attack, <laughs> uh, which allows the attacker to determine the information required to authorize the transaction without the PIN number uh, ahead of time. So basically, the authentication protocol that's used between the point-of-sales terminal and the chip on the card mm-hmm. requires the point-of-sales terminal to generate a announce, which is basically a single-use uh, number. Right? It, it basically... A random number. Uh, it doesn't have to be like cryptographically random. It can be just a regular pseudo random number, but it's important that it's not predictable uh, right. okay. mostly. But the general idea is that by including a random number in every transaction, and if someone tries to what's called do a, what's called a replay attack, which is to basically send the already encrypted message a second time, right? So you know you record someone legitimately going to an ATM of drawing $100, you record the transaction that goes to the bank for that, and then if you just replay it a second time, you could get a second $100. And then you just keep repeating that over and over again. Huh. The idea with the nouns is that you, you say, all right, we've already seen this number for this transaction. If we see it a second time, it's a duplicate. We don't want to allow that. Uh, but there... They're not globally unique. They just have to be unique for a, a reasonable period of time to prevent duplicates from happening. Hmm. Right? It, so it doesn't have to be really strongly random. It just needs to be unpredictable. Random enough. Yeah. Uh, so in the documentation for the protocol uh, for the chip and pin technology, it's documented as the unpredictable number. Right? Because <laughs> it doesn't actually have to be random. It just has to be random enough that somebody can't predict what it's going to be at a certain time. Yeah. Uh, so the purpose is to ensure that the authentication of the card is fresh, right? So an attacker can't use old data to on a new transaction. Okay. Uh, so the problem with the implementation is that many of the point-of-sales terminals don't actually generate a random or even pseudo-random number for the nouns, but just use like a timestamp or a counter. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So, you know, the protocol isn't necessarily <laughs> bad. It's just the implementation uh so this uh this allows an attack uh and and in the logs at your bank it appears as if your card has been cloned 
even though it's supposed to be impossible to clone a card if it has a chip. Uh, right? So the researchers discovered this vulnerability while investigating the case of a specific customer of HSBC, which is a large international bank, mm-hmm. uh, who has refused a refund from his bank, who stated that he must have entered his PIN number at the ATM uh, where the cash was withdrawn, even though that was in a different place than he was. Right? So they, they refused to give him his money back uh, when he was defrauded, claiming because he used his PIN number Gosh. or because they used his PIN number that he must have been in on the scheme and he was trying to defraud the bank. You know, Alan, uh, this, is, this is a problem when you have like all these technologies being deployed and you can tell that it could be just, it might not just be like, you know, evil bank being evil. It might just be that the people sitting in the support positions just are so unaware of how any of this works so that when... They're not. They're not equipped to to you know identify the issue and then bring it up the yep, chain well, to somebody who could actually fix this problem or analyze and look into this issue. They're just yeah. Uh, there are part of the issue is that even if there was a fix to this problem right now, yeah, it would require replacing a lot of the ATM machines and the point of sales terminals. Right. And the point of sales terminals are mostly owned by the merchants, the stores, and the stores don't want to undertake the cost of replacing all their machines. Uh, you know, and part of the problem is that they may be buying the cheapest machines they can get. I'm sure they are. Uh, and that might be why some of the implementations, like some are better than others, and it seems the weak ones are very common. And they want to keep getting, you know, the return on investment on those machines for as long as they possibly can. And exactly. I just, I just think it's funny because... That's, honestly, that's the main reason why this, the chip system isn't uh, more widely deployed in uh, the U.S., mm. is that merchants and banks didn't want to do it. We've, I've seen, uh, I've and, seen, you know, in, to force it in the UK, what they did was they said, all right, at, after this date, if your machine doesn't support chips, then any fraud is on you because you didn't upgrade your machine. Is this like the chip that I have like on my American Express? It's like this little, is, is it the same kind of thing or is that? It's like this, right? Yeah. 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 It looks like, yeah, yeah, exactly like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's that. So they're starting to be deployed, but they they basically weren't widely adopted for quite a while. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, so at the behest of the researchers at Cambridge uh, that were contacted by this guy who was basically scammed by his bank, uh, they asked him to demand from the bank the logs of the transactions in question here. Right? And sure. so they sent that data, which I have in the show notes, a little sample of it here, and it shows the date. Uh, the time of the transaction, and the supposedly unpredictable number, which the first thing you'll notice is that the first four digits of this hex unpredictable number are the same. Mm-hmm. That's not so unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, so the researchers uh, apparently did some other analysis with it, and I think they had some more data. There's all, The full paper is uh, linked in here, and there's a lot of detail in it. Yeah. Uh, but they determined that, in fact, the first 17 bits of the 32-bit nounce were a fixed value. Uh, it's not clear whether it's fixed to each individual ATM or each brand of ATM or what, but the number was, you know, so instead of having a 32-bit random number, which is up to 4 billion possibilities, uh, it was only a 15-bit number. Uh, which, if I remember correctly, is only 32,768 possibilities. Mm. Hmm. I just did that in my head. Did you see that? Did you really? Was that, was that on-the-fly math? Are you, are you not well, joshing me? 
I just happen to have memorized all the powers of two. Alan, it's you're not so, actually math in my head. You're so math capable. You're so <laughs> math savvy. It's unbelievable. So That's anyway, why they I have found you do the time the, stuff. Right, the 15-bit counter that make uh, the 15 bits that make up the rest of the random number. Yeah, are basically just a counter that is incremented every few milliseconds uh, and rolls over about every three minutes. <laughs> No, mysticism, 16 bits would be 65,536. Alan responding to the live chat room there for your yes. audio listeners. Uh, so the research uh, discusses how this weakness could be used to execute a preplay attack. So say you're an uh, employee working at a restaurant or retail store. When someone gives you their credit card, uh, well, with the chip and pin system, you don't so much give the uh, waiter your credit card and they go away and swipe it and come back they bring a portable machine to you and you have to put your card in it and and enter your pin number so it's a little harder uh but basically if they could gain access uh you know if they controlled the terminal they brought you or whatever uh they could basically run a second type of transaction over your card like a balance check and uh try to determine what information they would need to run to program their own card basically uh, now, that card would only work uh, when the notes came up to be the same thing again. Okay. But that happens once every three minutes on ah, this particular yeah. type of ATM. Sure. Although it changes every couple of milliseconds, so it would be very hard to time it. But if you read the research paper, they develop, there's a way for the card to ask for more time to compute the randomness or whatever. And so basically you could program a card that would just ask the, the uh, ATM to wait until it was the right time to execute the attack. <laughs> so then if you, could, if you could put your card in within like a 10-second window of when you wanted it, then you could uh, execute this attack. Yeah. So basically, uh, when you use your card legitimately at a restaurant or cafe or whatever, they could possibly skim enough data that at a predetermined time in the future, they could access your card again even though you're not there and you're not entering your pin number the thing that strikes me too is we are very quickly going towards a cashless society and there's a lot of talk about that but we obviously don't have the right solution in place and even the systems we've been using now for a few years have some pretty this is fundamental really yes and and you know they're not really designed in a way where you know if we had been if the system was designed properly ahead of time you'd be looking at something where you could remotely upgrade the um, the software right. on one of these these terminals, something that maybe would be developed today, something more modern. Well, uh, even the more modern ones don't really have that capability. Although that's also a security feature, right? If it can't be pre-programmed remotely, it can't be infested with malware remotely. Right, right, yeah. Because <laughs> that's that's one of the places where this attack could really take place. Is if you installed malware on a point of sales terminal or an ATM or a vending machine that uses cards, then you could have it, you know, record the data off the card and then execute the attack itself. Because what better than the point of sales terminal or the vending machine to allow you to set the unpredictable number for the transaction? Sure. So if you had malware on a vending machine, people walk up, buy something legitimately, oh, yeah. and then. You know, if that machine is networked or something to someone else that has a machine, they could run a transaction somewhere else and get money, even though you weren't there and didn't enter your PIN number. 
Wow. Or, you know, if there's malware on the vending machine, they could record your PIN number, but... I'm, I'm uh, browsing through this PDF you linked in the show notes. There's some good examples yeah. in here. Uh, they show the... Uh, if you look at the picture uh, in, like, chapter 3.1, I think, uh-huh. uh, they show the card that they built. Yes. So in order to uh, figure out how this... Uh, or what these unpredictable numbers are, since, you know, looking at the logs from the bank wasn't a very easy way to do it, uh, they built their own little card with a couple hundred dollars worth of extra processors and stuff on it, uh, but, you know, specifically designed not to become too wide to fit in the slot, in the uh, the ATMs and so on. Mm-hmm. The researchers built their own special card that would basically record the unpredictable numbers used in each transaction as they performed them. Uh. And then they would just, you know, do a series of, like, check my balance and stuff, stuff that doesn't actually cause a withdrawal from your bank account. The idea there is that, you know, if they did 10 withdrawals in a row at an ATM, it might cause a red flag in the bank's fraud detection system. So instead, they did a bunch of innocuous stuff like checking their balance over and over and over again so that they would see a bunch of these nounce values in, you know, recorded closely together. I'm, you know, in this PDF, they have pictures of them at the uh, at the ATMs and stuff. Could you imagine their yes. adrenaline? Well, they also, to make it easier, they went on eBay and bought a couple of ATMs <laughs> so that they could tear them apart and see what was inside. Smart, and, smart. Okay. You know, on one of them, they found it was running OS two. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I've seen I've seen pictures of ones running like Windows ninety five with the blue screen of death up and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found that a lot of them just used the RAND. Uh, function built into C, which is known not to be, you know, cryptographically random at all. That of is actually predictable. That makes a lot of sense. That that's what they would use. But, that. Well, uh, they've also found that sometimes the older ATMs are actually better. Really? Yes, because instead of a general type purpose computer with you know just some code on it, they relied on like a hardware DES chip to do the random numbers. Ah, right. Uh, whereas now, it's mostly just a bunch of software running on any type of simple embedded computer. General purpose processes are fast enough these days. We don't need a dedicated chip. Right. Well, or they're small enough and, and low power enough. Uh, whereas back then, you know, they had no problem. They, they, you know, had purpose-built hardware to do the randomness and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, they found that some of the newer ones are just, you know, using time and RAND from C and are obviously, therefore, not unpredictable. Wow. Uh, I think they found, like, one of the machines, the random numbers kind of started to repeat every time they rebooted the machine. <laughs> right? Because there wasn't, the random number generator wasn't being properly seeded. And so, you know, in that type of attack, if you could attack the ATM right after it was refilled on a schedule, so when it was first booted up, you could predict what the nounces might be at that time. Yeah, or what if it's like like they have some shots here of these portable ATMs, and these ones you can actually just yank the power cord out of the wall. Yep. Yeah, those are the more port- uh, point of sales type ones. Yeah, yeah, like at the gas stations. And, you and know, there, there's little like wireless ones, like handheld ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with like cell phone style internet, like you know, if I order a pizza, they like, they can bring the terminal. I can pay with my credit card or debit card at the door. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know. So it'd be fairly easy for my pizza delivery guy to replace the regular terminal with one he built. Oh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> that, that does some nefarious things. This is a booming opportunity for the delivery guy. Yeah. I like it. I mean, not in the sense that I like it, but in the sense that, you know, everybody yes, needs an opportunity. Uh, so there, there's a paper here and a blog post from one of the authors of the paper 
that goes into a bunch of detail and uh it's quite fascinating to read but it it does kind of uh show you that while the system was designed fairly well although there are some problems uh it's more that the implementation was wrong but also the the assurance testing right basically before a vendor that makes one of these machines can sell it with like a visa logo on it Mm -hmm. it has to undergo testing okay uh except for the test is run four transactions one after the other and make sure that you don't get the same random nouns each time Uh. well if if the number you're checking is only four you're not going to get that anyway but the other problem was technically because of the birthday paradox you're more likely to get two numbers the same in a short run like that from a random number than from a counter or a timer. So it kind of begs the question, you know, was it the testing that caused this to work out wrong? So better testing Uh, might have failed some of these devices for not being random enough and a better definition uh, in the specification could have caused people to not think that they shouldn't use a random number because of the chances of two of them being uh, identical near each other. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan, I know now I see why you've, that is a massive story. I see why you wanted to cover that for a while. Yes, but the PDF file is really long and I hadn't had time to read it. <laughs> it's, it's, got, it's got graphs. It's got hardware porn in there. I mean, it's a good PDF. Yeah, and it, it's go. got uh, like printouts from like five or six different ATMs. What their <laughs> yeah. announces look like? Yeah, it got and Tetris running on one point of sales device. And they got pictures of that. <laughs> Did you see that in there? Towards the end of the document, they got shots of the thing playing Tetris. It's yeah. I, sh- I showed a quick uh, shot of it on the video stream here, but yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Now we're going to jump ahead for the next clip. It's mm-hmm. episode one twenty eight, and surprise, surprise, it's something from Mr. Krebs. What is it, Alan? Yes, uh, so. Krebs uh, covers how crooks would register uh, for a social security account on the the government's website before you did. So, you know, typical uh, social security fraud is somehow convincing senior people to sign to trick them into uh, having the money deposited in your account instead, or or redirecting their checks, or stealing a check, or whatever. Well, it turns out, so the government was like, "Oh, we'll, we'll make this website so people can do stuff without having to go to an office." Right, and that'll make it easier for us and easier for people. But it turns out, if you hadn't registered on the website, someone with enough information could go and pretend to be you and register, and then change what bank account the government deposited the money into. I remember this there, yeah. instead of yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you know, that was a, a pretty glaring uh, story. And I thought that was uh, yeah. one of the cool ones we covered way back when. I remember. I remember. I think that was almost a face palmer if I recall. Check yeah. it out. Uh, so people. Uh, the Social Security Administration, which is people that give out the old age benefit or whatever you call it in the States. Um, <clears throat> Do you guys actually call it old age benefit up in Canada? Yes. <laughs> that's, so, that's so, I don't know, like blunt. Direct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that way you know what it is. It doesn't have to have a fluffy name. <laughs> like Social Security Administration or retirement benefits. Well, yeah, we, have, we, have, we call it social insurance. Okay. Okay. Instead of Social Security, but it's the same thing. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so they've uh, switched now so that you have to use direct deposit. They don't mail checks except for a few very specific exemptions. Uh, and that makes sense because it reduces the amount of you know postage and stuff and just paper. Why waste all the paper? Uh, but uh, because 
previously there had been quite a bit of fraud where you know a bad uh, actor would convince a bank to start sending somebody's direct deposit to the wrong account. Uh, so a lot of banks have gotten away from allowing you to make the change at the bank and make you go to the Social Security Administration. Mm. Uh, so they set up a website uh, where you can just go online and change your benefits to go to your bank account or whatever. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that if you have not registered on the SSA's My Social Security web portal site, uh, someone, if they had all the details of your identity, could sign up on your behalf and direct the money to the wrong account. Yeah, so this seems to be the tricky thing, because if it's tied to your social security number, what would prevent me if I figured out what your social security number was going in and creating an account on your behalf? Right. Uh, So in this case, the security researchers that are discussing the problem say that uh, you should go and register your account so that you control it, because otherwise some bad person could claim your account. Mm. Uh, Although that seems to underscore fundamental flaws in the way the system was built rather than Anything specific. Uh, slips in the chat room asks if this is Canadian. No, we're talking about the U.S. Social Security system, not the Canadian one. Uh, at the end, I have a note about how the Canadian one is different in the security system they use that makes solves most of the problem. Uh, but anyway, so they added the way so you can log into the, your account on the SSA website and you know change what account your money goes to. Uh, in, in this case, it seems that since, uh, or as of August 23rd of 2013, the Social Security Administration has received 18,417 complaints about uh, people fraudulently having their benefits stolen. Mm. These would all uh, be these would all be people that would be at retirement age. I mean, that's yes, what's sort of kind of a like, lot of yeah, and a lot of these, not sorry, not everyone would have to, uh, the Social Security Administration pays out uh, to also people with disabilities. and. Oh, true, yeah, I guess it could be, yeah. That's it's true. not yeah. only people right. that are retired. Correct, correct. But a lot of people, you know, this is how they survive, right? It's a social safety net. Yeah. Uh, they say that there's no suggestion that the SSA system has been compromised, right? That somebody hasn't compromised the system and is, is just redirecting anybody's money. They're just committing identity fraud and registering on the site as the person and changing the, uh, the destination of the payments. Uh, banks usually alert customers if the uh, account that the SSA payments go to is changed, but that often is sent you know, in the regular mail. And if you're not expecting it, you, know, you get a lot of junk mail and most of it you just throw away, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... It's almost like, you know, if you got that same email from your bank, there's just as high a probability that the thing you get in the mail was a scam as it is the thing you get in an email. Uh, right. I mean, especially if I'm, if I'm interacting with this new online service and everything I'm doing is through a website and the whole, the whole point is to reduce paper and get me to go online, I would, I, would, I would not actually expect for a red flag to come to me via the mail. I would expect it to be some sort of electronic notice. Right, but you know you don't want to trust a yeah, either. But, yeah. but anyway, so this is the bank separate from the SSA. Right, they're like, hey, we noticed that you're not sending us your money anymore. Yeah. did you mean to do that? Yeah, uh, but yeah, he says many customers overlook such notices. Uh, so they say if you receive direct deposits from the SSA but haven't yet registered on their new uh, web portal, you might want to do that just so someone else can't do it on your behalf. Right, uh, because it's possible to create uh, just. Uh, to create a social security account uh, 
just by having the social security number and, and registering, uh, that's how you would do that. I guess the apparently problem, they're going to implement some additional security measures, but I guess you could make the case this is the argument for the national ID, right? That way, I can verify that you are Chris Fisher and that is you creating now, an account. How is it doing it other than having a number that's like your SSN but different? It's got to be some sort of. I don't know. Some sort of is it going to be like a smart card? Because what about the people that are you know using a computer at a library that's old and doesn't have a smart card reader? Or, I don't know. I mean, there's know? been talk of like a yeah, like almost like a driver's license for the internet. Right, but again, if it's just and, some number, yeah. it can be stolen right. just as easily. It'd have to have some sort of way to authentic- do some sort of authentication token, like you know, or like a I don't know, maybe like a some sort of RSA. Code. I don't know what they right. Would do. Well, ha- we've we've seen the RSA get hacked and those codes get broken. Right. On anything and, at know, that scale would be a huge target. Too. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. That is. Yeah. But yeah. you know, this is this. We are at the beginning of a lot of these services going online. So this is going to be a big problem. So Canada has had something similar uh, that I use in two different ways. I have the business version for filing our like sales tax returns online. And then there's also the version I do for my like my income tax and so on. Sure. And they've combined all this into what they call the, like my tax account or whatever. And so when you go to register for it, you put in all your details, including your social insurance number. Uh, and then it will be like, we would like, uh, what was the number you wrote on this random line of your tax return in uh, last year? Hmm. Okay. So something they have on file that they knew when they back when they verified yeah, it was but you. But something like it's it's fairly obscure it's not even like the the you know just your income level it's like some random specific line from your tax return uh and you enter that and then to activate your account you know how normally you register and you get like an email you have to verify yeah they do the same thing but snail mail you get sent this you know auth- uh, authentication token in the mail and you have to enter that into the website before you can start using the account okay and I guess that's a pretty good system, and pretty much everyone already keeps their ta- all their tax records, and this is just more incentive to keep them. And since you're requiring something that people are already kind of keeping, it's kind of ingrained into us to keep well, that. Well, yeah, like you're supposed to keep them for five years yeah, anyway. Right, so you can, you can pretty safely assume they'll have it, which is yeah. a good system too. Yeah. You Canadians. Next you're going to tell me you've got health care. <clears throat> we do. <laughs> all right, Alan. Well, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, that one, uh, not really. It just seems that... They need to implement something so that some random person that happens to, like, I don't know what the sign-up form looked like and what information they take in addition to just the social insurance number, but, you know, it was a grade 10 programming assignment to write the code to validate social insurance numbers, right? Uh, so it's fairly easy to just generate random ones and try them until you find one that wasn't taken and <laughs> yeah. steal their money. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Whereas... You know, to pull off the scam, you know, with the snail mail, there's still the possibility. Like, if you happen to know specifically you're targeting, you know, the old people across the street, you yeah. can go through their mail or yeah. whatever. Yeah, but. yeah. Huh. I, I look at it as um, a, definitely a problem where the technology is just not quite there with the right answer. And then you combine that with a generation or probably predominantly a generation of people who are not super savvy. This is really kind of where, like, the TechSnap audience kind of has to step in and just, right. you know, take and, your family you know, member and help them. They went further. It's like, you know, we've seen a lot of malware specifically targeting online banking. Yeah. We might see one targeting the Social Security Administration website. I don't know how theirs works. If, you know, people are logging in every month or something. 
Probably um, not. Curbs uh, on security on his blog said that uh, maybe uh, take a family member under your wing and hook them up with a live CD. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Is, uh, you know, he talked about using a live CD so that you can do certain things securely, even if the machine is full of malware. If you're yeah. booting up the live CD, yeah. and that way you know that that system, you know, it's read only. It's it's going to be fine. Although yeah. the problem with that is eventually the browser on there is old and out of date. Yeah, it's it's almost one of those things where the technology is not ready for us not to be hands on still with this kind of stuff. And I have I've had family members. Oh man. I have had family members who got a new machine and within the first week had junked it up with malware. And it was oh, yeah. just Plus like the crapware that comes on it. Yeah. 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 Big time. Now we're going to take a moment to take just a bit of a thanks for IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnaps, where you go to support this show and learn more about the IX company. Maybe this is your secret weapon for 2016. Think about it. IX Systems is where Alan and I go to get our hardware. Whenever you really need an ultimate solution that's powered by open source software, IX Systems is the way to go. They have the experience in the industry, in the hardware and software side. There's a ton of hardware over at Scale Engine powered by IX Systems, too. Well, I think that's the big thing to consider is while they can do all these ultimate machines, they can also do small ones. You know, at Scale Engine, we often buy giant storage servers. You know, we're just talking about the one, like 200 terabytes or whatever. Hmm. But sometimes it was like, I need a small, cheap machine that I can ship to a data center in Portland just to have a node there. So I want, like, you know, a quad-core processor, 16 gigs of RAM, and, like, four hard drives. You know, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of money. And they can build those as well. Yeah. They have a great set of uh, servers. And I think the thing that I found to be pretty amazing is, uh, I, I, I got the free NAS Mini. I thought this would be a one-year, two-year thing. And we're now over two years into it, and it still has expansion capabilities, and it still has the performance that we need. And I think when you think about the fact that we're moving around huge files, lots of data, it's a pretty serious workload. And so I can only imagine what these systems would be capable of with even more horsepower behind them, regardless of where you scale up. Why don't you get started by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They've got a handy guide you could download there. Give them a look. See what you might yeah. think. I yeah. think uh, well, you'd be pretty impressed. Whatever mission it is you're trying to accomplish, they can do it. Uh, and if you have a story about how you've uh, successfully uh, completed some mission, they have uh, ixsystems.com slash mission complete, and you write in your story about how you used FreeNAS or FreeBSD or ZFS or whatever to solve some problem or, or complete the work you needed to do, and uh, they highlight the best stories every month. Yeah. All right. Now, Alan, we're going to go uh, to a very special episode in the long run of the TechSnap program. Of course, that would be episode 100. A couple of neat things, including mm-hmm. Mr. Curbs on security. Right, Alan? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. First of all, this is special because it's our 100th episode, right? I mean, was that the first time we were in person together? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, which makes it a special episode already. Uh but as part of it, we covered a story about Bit9, uh, this company that makes uh, malware software. Uh, it's like a blacklisting thing, and there was a compromise of their system, and it was quite a good story for TechSnap. But a lot of the coverage came from this guy named Curbs. And I was like, who is this Curbs guy? What does he think he is? Why do I keep seeing his name everywhere all of a sudden? I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. I wasn't sure I liked him at first. Yeah, well, you've got to be skeptical when these newcomers yeah. come on the scene, Alan. And then, and then I was like, oh, Krebs. And then I read about who he is and I see more and more of his work. I was like, wow, this is a good guy. I like this guy. I'm quite a fan of this yeah. guy. <laughs> just, I'm not sure why my first reaction was like, who is this guy with his forehead? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think a little skepticism is healthy. So there yeah, you go. But, Enjoy uh, this classic episode. Little, little did I know that uh, Krebs would be like one of my go-to sources yeah, for text I, maps. That's right. almost worth the clip right there. This next story is funny because you always think of the antivirus companies as like, I don't know, invulnerable to being exploited themselves. Kind of. <laughs> I don't well, not necessarily, but yeah, like you hope, I yeah. guess, is maybe the better way to put it. Yeah, you hope. And it's just... <laughs> You know, they're the ones that are researching right. and figuring out how the viruses work and, and everything. supposed to be defending if you're using their yeah. software. Exactly. Especially this one. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. you know, they're they're claiming, oh, we're better than every other antivirus because we're different. And that would be Bit9, right? Yes. Uh, so Bit9 is a security company, and their main product is an application control software. Uh, okay. So basically what it does is monitor every program and process running on your server or your end-user device, like a desktop or a laptop or whatever. Uh-huh. And reports any unusual activity or any unapproved activity at all uh, back. Okay. So basically what it has is a whitelist of known good applications, like your Microsoft Word. And, you know, if you have custom apps, uh, you sign them with a uh, key and the Bit9 knows, all right, this is on your company's whitelist. So it's allowed, you know, it's internal apps or whatever. So basically you have a list of everything that's allowed to run. So anything that's not on that list doesn't run at all? Uh, Depending on the settings, yeah. You can run it, block it, or you can... uh, you know, just flag it and be like an alert. Hey, so then I should it. never have to worry about malware that's not in that list, right? Exactly. By pro- saying only the apps were allowed to run when you, you know, if you went, if you have Bit9 on your system and you went to uh, the NBC website when the malware got injected through Java, when it tried to run, Bit9 be like, hey, that's not on the white list. That doesn't get to run. <laughs> right. Okay. And, you know, so that's the biggest thing. It's like we said, the Citadel Trojan was only detected by three out of the 46 virus scanners. Right. Because they didn't have it on their blacklist. Right? Mm-hmm. A virus scanner is basically a blacklist of things that you don't want to run. Right. So Bit9 is a whitelist of what you do want to run. Okay. Now, on a regular desktop user, that probably get really annoying really fast. Yeah. But in a corporation where you only need specific apps and right. you need that high security, right. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because of that, Bit9's customers include the U.S. government, banks, oil and energy companies, defense contractors, mm. 30 of the companies off the Fortune 100 list. Wow. You know, ones that are seriously concerned about security. Yeah. Ones that want to be able to say, we're yeah. doing, we're, we're whitelisting, we're doing something. Yeah. And it's more than what you get from a regular virus scanner. So when <coughs> the attackers wanted to break into one of these defense contractors, uh, they found out they couldn't because of this Bit9 software. It okay. was stopping their exploit. Very nice. So they're like, well, there's one way around that. <laughs> oh, really? Yep. So the attackers managed to compromise uh, one or more machines at Bit9 and gained access to the code signing certificate. <laughs> Used that to sign 32 pieces of malware and put them on the master Bit9 whitelist. No! So this was anyone running Bit9 was now going to allow these 32 pieces of malware. Oh, oh no. So it's doing the exact opposite of what all of their customers want. And it's actually yeah. using their own signatures. Yeah. So basically it was whitelisting a bunch of software <laughs> signed with the Bit9 certificate. Wow. Uh, so as it turns out, due to what they describe as an operational oversight, <laughs> a, quote, handful of computers and virtual machines at Bit9 were not running Bit9's own software. Their own software. Yeah, so most of their servers and computers run Bit9. Right. But uh, in this case, they spun up a bunch of virtual machines to do a test or something. And they're just, you know, in a rush. And they, they didn't they have didn't, time to load yeah, it. They didn't put Bit9 on They didn't it. want the performance hit. Well, or they didn't want to have to keep whitelisting all this <laughs> right. new stuff they were testing or whatever. Bit9's a hassle. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't use it on their own system. Uh, and so the intrusion against their machines weren't actually detected or prevented. Oh, uh, Bit9. Because uh, Bit9 wasn't running. 
Uh, so Bit9 says, you know, it's not a problem with their software. <laughs> their software wasn't compromised. Their source code wasn't compromised, et cetera. It, but, you know, uh, so their investigation suggests that only three of their customers were affected by the illegitimately signed malware. So basically, these attackers were actually not going after Bit9. They were going after three specific customers of Bit9. So they got this malware signed, but they only used it against those three companies, probably to keep the profile low so they wouldn't get caught. Right? If they tried to use it against all kinds of people all over the place, it would have raised more flags sooner. People would have noticed. Uh, Wow. Specifically because the original attack took place in July of 2012, and uh, Bit9 didn't find out about it until January. Wow. We'll describe how that happened in a second here. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so Bit9 revoked the certificate that was used to sign the malware and probably previously had been signed, you know, everything on their whitelist. Yeah. Uh, so revoking is kind of a, a difficult step because they would have to re-sign every binary again with the new certificate. Holy when crap. they revoked the old one. Holy crap. Uh, although Bit9 says that the certificate that was compromised is one they had already phased out. Uh, like they weren't using it to sign anything new at that point. Okay. Uh, but it hadn't expired yet, so it was still valid. So their software still trusted it. They had just started signing stuff with a different key by then. Oh, no. Uh, so it was probably a little easier for them to revoke that key than it would have been if they were still actively using that key. Yeah. Because they would have had to resign everything on the whitelist. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so they revoked uh, the certificate that had been compromised, got a new certificate, and went through the process of signing all the whitelisted apps over again with the new certificate. And they also blacklisted the old certificate and anything signed with the old certificate <laughs> so that uh if your bit nine somehow didn't realize the old certificate got revoked because you know your this uh certificate revocation infrastructure isn't always great yeah uh so they have a hard-coded blacklist or uh, yeah blacklist against that certificate in the software as well so uh like if you remember when uh the komodo and DigiNotar hacks happened uh they didn't want to revoke trust in the entirety of komodo because it's Huge number of websites, yeah, major mine. impact, yeah. Um, <laughs> at the time, anyway. Um, so they just blacklisted the specific Google certificates. So they kind of did this hybrid approach where they're doing both to make sure it definitely doesn't get through. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to note that the the most often touted feature of Bit Nine is that it stops new and unknown malware <coughs> uh, because it only allows the pr- approved applications to run. Right. But which is the opposite of a traditional antivirus, which relies on a blacklist of known malware. Uh, but in this case, it may have actually been that Bit9 was allowing known malware to run, right? A traditional virus scanner might have caught some of these pieces of malware that Bit9 was allowing because they were whitelisted. Mm-hmm. So they might have been not using, quote-unquote, proper protection because well, they regular, figured... They might not have been using regular antivirus because they had Bit9. Right, right. And so this malware may have actually been detected by regular antivirus, but it wasn't by bit nine because it was whitelisted <laughs> is it pretty interesting oh man talk about like just getting pissed because like could you imagine like yeah. if it was the u.s government they call it bit nine say now you guys listen we bought this specifically to prevent this from happening exactly wow uh so <clears throat> bit nine is not saying which of its customers were the three that were targeted but based on other information we got from other sources and a list of customers bit nine said it wasn't like, they specifically said it wasn't going after critical infrastructure like a electric grid, and it wasn't going after banks. Huh. Uh, based on what they eliminated and the list of companies they tout on their uh, front page, which they usually don't give by name, but they're like two of the top ten companies in this yes, industry. Yes, I've so noticed on. that, yeah. Um, 
it was most likely defense contractors that were targeted. Well, that would make sense. If you're going to yeah. go through the trouble of all of this and to only yeah. target a couple of people, they've got to be extremely high value, right? And it reminds me of the RSA attack we saw, where the company hacked into RSA, or the, the attackers hacked into RSA, right. compromised the secure ID tokens, and then used those to break into Lockheed Martin. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it seems a very similar style here where, you know, they're hacking some company, not as the ultimate end of hacking that company and stealing their information, but actually just using that as the stepping stone to break into another place. It's, uh, I guess, you know... Uh, there was another example that we covered in the past. It was, uh, I think it was in South Korea, and they hacked some company who makes like a little like zip and little utility pack for sysadmins or right. something, and they infected their right. update, so the auto-update software would infect all their customers just to break into one company. It seems like maybe I would buy that it's more of a state-sponsored type attack when they will go to the trouble of compromising something like Bit9 and then yep. targeting a defense contractor. Don't yep. you almost think that doesn't well, it's sound like almost anonymous gotta be to that me. or a, a competing defense contractor? Oh, yeah. yeah those, maybe from another country, yeah. you know, like a French defense yeah. contractor wants whatever Lockheed Martin has yeah. oh, maybe. or something. Because, hmm. you know, those defense contracts are huge piles of money. Yeah, and it can be for a uh, long time. So, and then uh, Bit9 posted an update after that where they get into a little more detail about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bit, uh, Bit9 says the attackers originally compromised uh, their systems in July of 2012. Basically, they used a SQL injection flaw against some software that was running on an internet-accessible web server at their company. Mm-hmm. So they had, uh, you know, internet-accessible web server, probably like something like the auto-update server for uh, Bit9. And the attackers used an SQL injection flaw to gain access to that server. From that web server, they were able to compromise two regular user accounts uh, on the network. Uh, maybe it was Active Directory or something. I'm not sure. Anyway, so they broke and got two user accounts, uh, legitimate user accounts, on the network. Then they use those to eventually get access to a virtual machine that uh, Bit9 was running, in this case probably for testing, uh, that had access to the code signing certificate, yeah. specifically the private key right. for it, so that they could sign uh, their own malware. Hmm. And that gave them access to the private keys, right? So the virtual machine was compromised uh, in July, and then like a week later or something, they shut the virtual machine off because they didn't need it anymore, right? It was just for a test. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the virtual machine sat off for until ja- in January, they turned the virtual machine back on. And then uh, their IDS or something picked up that something was hinky. And so that's why it took them so long to find out is because they just happened to have turned off the virtual machine that and just let was it sit, infected. sit there for a while. Yeah. <clears throat> and so when they turned it back on, they noticed the suspicious activity. So it sounds like... They had some sort of software in place to catch it once it did come back online. So that's commendable. Well, that or it, they started investigating because Lockheed Martin was like, hey, somebody broke into our <laughs> system and stole our <laughs> hey, shit. Hey, maybe we should turn that VM on and check it out. There might be something on that. Or something to that effect. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, you know, uh, they've obviously <laughs> investigated and found out how they got in with that SQL injection in the web server in there. Again, no specifics about what software was running on their web server and how it got SQL injected. If it was their own and they were just doing insufficient validation or what. Right. Hmm. Uh, but Bit9 says the evidence suggests that they were not the ultimate target. Their customers were, and it was just a stepping stone. Uh, they did an audit of their source code, both automated with searches and stuff, and also like a line-by-line looking through it. Hmm. And they found that their software was not accessed or modified in any way. Okay. Because that would have been crazy. Is the better, like the ultimate attack against Bit9 would have been changing the source code slightly to include 
a second master certificate <laughs> so that I could then continuously sign as much malware as I want to right. work against Bit9 right. and make Bit9 trust my certificate in addition to Bit9's own certificate forever. That would have been amazing. And if that story. had gone undetected for months and months, that would have been huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, And then they say what happened is the attackers later executed a watering hole attack like the iPhone SDK one, mm-hmm. but against the defense industry, mm-hmm. uh, and hit the three targets of the, uh, the three Bit9 customers that got infected. So they didn't actually use Bit9 as the vector to get into the systems. They just uh, used the Bit9 certificate to sign the malware so Bit9 wouldn't stop them getting in. Very clever. Yeah. So it's not like they actually infected Bit9 to make it as the delivery mechanism. Right. They still went out and did a watering hole attack yeah. and spear phishing and so on. They get into the a lot company. of thought went into yes. this whole attack. A lot of planning yeah. as well. And, and, yeah. and a lot of they, probably reconnaissance well, to know well, what ones they, to go they had, they had to find out what site a whole bunch of people... At, the defense contractor go to, right. then they have to find which of those sites can we hack and inject code into. Right. You know, so basically they had and to hack at least two other places. And they had to know, and they had to know exploits that were going to work and yep. they had to be fairly confident they wouldn't be detected. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of, a this lot of a research. Huge there. amount of, of work that went into this. That's impressive. Yeah. And, and just, you know, the fact that they had to hack a whole bunch of different places just to be able to break into this mm-hmm. one defense contractor. Mm-hmm. It shows the defense contractor security is actually not that bad. Yeah, they have lots of layers like this, but it also reminds more you, layers. It also reminds you that a crucial part of securing your network is f- ensuring that anybody, any partner, or any provider or, yep. s- or software provider that has access or is responsible for your security checks out too. And yep. that just requires due diligence on your part. And that's, there's not even really but necessarily yeah, a technological. Basically, fix. Uh, you can't trust any one thing, right? right? So you need layers, yeah. right? So you know, if you have Bit9, that's great, but you also need an intrusion detection system that's going to find yeah. patterns of, hey, somebody's going to... Like, that's how Facebook found out they, uh, some of their developers' laptops were hacked, is they were inspecting traffic as it left their network. And like, hey, look at these uh-huh. uh, funny domains that we shouldn't be having any traffic to. Right, so they that's caught it. command and control traffic going out from infected machines, trace it back, this machine's look infected. Look at Facebook go, huh? Look at them. Yeah, they, well... They have to. They're a huge target. Yeah. And, you know, they have the bug bounty program. They don't want to have to pay out on that as much as, as you know, the, the less money they pay to people because they found the vulnerabilities first, the better, right? Right. They'd rather pay people than have people exploit it. That's why they have the bug bounty. Yeah. But if they can find the exploits first, that's <laughs> better for everybody. <laughs> Everybody's happy. Because it also stops the people that found an exploit and didn't report it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, yeah, <laughs> so the watering hole attack is very similar to the one that got Twitter, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Uh, but the the attack ultimately uh, through the watering hole attack used a Java vulnerability to exploit the high kit and Unix box back or yeah Unix home backdoors, uh, which were two of the binaries that were signed using the stolen Bit9 certificate. Uh, so instead of being blocked, they were allowed. And then I have uh, a bunch of follow up stuff here. Uh, Curbs on security has a giant two part thing about this attack with uh, all yeah. kinds of details. Right on, including. Uh, Apparently, they have a source at one of the defense contractors, so they have more details than Bit9 gave on their website, or maybe even more than Bit9 knew themselves about what happened internally. Details. Yeah, and then Security Ledger also had some coverage, so I have links to all that. Uh, It's a huge amount of reading. I've read a lot of it, but even I didn't have time to read it all. (laughs) And I spent literally like eight hours on this story. Now, coming back from episode 100, we're going to jump yeah. way ahead because this is a favorite of both Alan and ours. This is one that I was blown away at the high-tech ingenuity of hackers generations ago. Yeah, it's like it's weird to kind of jump, you know, was this like two and a half years into the future? <laughs> so, you know, the visual contrast would be something. But yeah. this is just a great story uh, about key loggers built into typewriters. 
and you know just ways of like defeating uh the you know the scanners they would go to make sure there weren't bugs in the offices and so on and how they got around all that uh and you know it's like all this stuff still applies today like if you want to build a keylogger into a computer nowadays you would steal all of these ideas and it's a <laughs> great true. cold war story from the 60s yeah it was that was really something. And uh, I, I think that's one that uh, is like almost a TechSnap classic. So I'm glad you pulled it out as one of your favorites, Alan. So we were talking about the Russians. And uh, this next story takes us back into a time really before computers were at everybody's desk. Heart of the Cold War, if I'm not mistaken. What are yes, we talking about, Alan? 1970s. Nice. Nice. Uh, so uh, keyloggers before there were computers. Such a thing existed, uh, Alan? Yes, how the Soviets used IBM Selectric keyloggers to spy on U.S. diplomats with their typewriter. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, a national agency, a national security agency memo that recently surfaced uh, a few years ago, but uh, doesn't seem to have got wide coverage. So Ars dug it up and decided to write about it. Hmm. Uh, published details uh, about uh, analysis of what well, they're very possibly the world's first keylogger. Right. A 1970s bug that Soviet-era spies implanted into U.S. diplomats' IBM Selectric typewriters. They put a bug uh, in to there. Monitor, uh, yeah, to monitor uh, classified letters and memos. Hmm. So they so could maybe, uh, they would read the memos as they're being, or they would get the memos as they're typing them out, then they would, yeah. oh, that's funny, Alan. Yeah, so basically it would sit in there and, and figure out what's being typed. Although, because it monitored the way um, the way these typewriters worked, they had a, a little like ball a deal with all the the letters on it, and yeah. it would spin and whack yeah. the paper. Yeah. Um, but when you pressed space or tab, the it didn't use the ball because it just moved the it moved it the right. paper over, but it didn't actually use the ball. Yeah. Um, so the way the Soviets spied on this, they couldn't f- tell where you had pressed space, <laughs> so they would have to kind of like interpret the strings of letters. <laughs> also, backspace. <laughs> uh, wouldn't get caught because that just moves it back one and then like the person with the typewriter would have to like manually white out the letter yeah some of the fancier ones did get some white out later on but yeah not yeah. probably back in the 70s probably not right um so you know you'd have to interpret through typos and and uh still though, have to figure out where the spaces are but in general I, you've got a bunch yeah of that's not a bad source of info i'd imagine yeah so uh these electromechanical implants were nothing short of an engineering marvel uh, the highly miniaturized series of circuits were stuffed into a metal bar that ran the length of the typewriter, making them invisible to the naked eye. The implant, which uh, could only be seen using x-ray equipment, recorded the precise location of the little ball the selectric typewriters used to imprint a character on paper. Uh, with the exception of spaces, tabs, uh, the hyphen was at the home position, so they, it didn't spin, so it couldn't tell that that's what happened. Uh, and backspace, the tiny devices had the ability to record every key press and transmit it back to Soviet spies in real time. Love it. Uh, the Soviet implants were discovered through the painstaking analysis of more than 10 tons worth of equipment that was taken from U.S. embassies and consulates and shipped back to the U.S. Uh, the implants were ultimately found in 16 different typewriters used between 1976 and 1984 hmm. at U.S. embassies in Moscow and the U.S. consulate in Leningrad. So they had uh, easy access to those ones probably. Uh, well, it seems that the implants might have actually been put in in the U.S. before the typewriters were shipped to oh, Russia. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> by by Soviet spies on this side. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? I guess so. Because, you know, the, 
obviously the Russians are, couldn't very easily just go into the U.S. embassy. You know. Yeah, but it seems like breaking into an embassy would be easier than getting it installed over in the U.S. But I suppose Not, maybe you could just pay someone in the U.S. Yeah, and if the man, you know, who knows what the manufacturing floor is like? Maybe exactly. it's easy to get access just to walk that. In. Yeah, and then I guess the only other tricky thing is you'd have to know where those typewriters are going to know which ones to bug. But yeah. they're, you know, the NSA figures that out for Cisco routers, so I'm sure they could have yeah. figured it out for that. Exactly. Uh, the bugs went undetected for uh, the entire eight-year span and only came to light following a tip from a U.S. ally whose own embassy had been targeted by a similar eavesdropping operation. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that figures out with somebody out there. I'm guessing the British or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Canadians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Despite the ambiguities in knowing what characters were actually being typed and, you know, the spaces and so on, the typewriter attack against the U.S. was a lucrative source of information for the Soviets. I bet. An NSA document, which is uh, declassified several years ago, concluded, is difficult to quantify the damage to the U.S. from this exploit because it went on for eight years. Right? They must uh, just have to operate sometimes under the assumption that information must be compromised because you look back exactly. at this kind of stuff and you're like, oh, geez, everything we typed yeah. over there. Yeah. It's like how much different would things have gone if that hadn't been the case, you know? possible it could have been much worse right because at least this, when you know what the other guys are thinking you you don't necessarily assume it's the worst any bad things about what they're thinking yeah. right uh so there's i have a link here also to the uh the documents from the nsa they have these under their uh, cryptologic heritage section uh yes learning from the enemy the gunman project wow uh, which came out in 2012 uh ars is uh, reporting the document because it doesn't appear to have been uh you know Covered very much, but it came up on Bruce Schneier's blog earlier this week and had uh, quite a lively conversation about it. Oh, really? So uh, that's that's how Ars uh, tipped onto this thing that's ah. been in. It was declassified in 2012, but you know, it didn't really sound exciting. You know, it got buried. It just the NSA just dropped a bunch of old documents on the website, right? Uh, but in this particular case, this is actually interesting insight into how you know the evolution of spying and keylogging and so on. Mm-hmm. Plus, everybody loves a good Russian hacking story. Yeah. So when the uh, implants were first reported, one bugging expert uh, cited in Discover magazine uh, speculated it worked by measuring the minute differences in the time it took for each character to be imprinted by waiting for the ball to spin to the right spot. Clever. Uh, this theory was based on observation that the, uh, the time this electric ball took to complete a rotation was different for each letter. Um, a low-tech listening device planted it in the room uh, would then transmit the sound of the... T- uh, typing selectric on a Soviet-operated computer that would uh, reconstruct the series of key presses. But it turns out that's not how it worked. In fact, the implant was far more advanced and worked by measuring the movement of the bail, which is the, the term the analyst used for the mechanical arms that controlled the pitch and rotation of the ball. I uh, say, so in reality, the movement of the bail determined which character was being typed because each character had a unique binary movement corresponding to the bail, right? The, series of turns you had to do to get to that letter before you whack it against the paper. Uh, The magnetic energy picked up by the sensors in the bar, uh, which is the listening device, uh, was converted into a digital electrical signal. Uh, The signal was compressed into a 4-bit frequency select word. Uh, So they, because there was only so many possible letters, they just condensed it down. Yeah. Uh, The bug was able to store up to eight of these 4-bit characters and then when the buffer was full, a transmitter in the bar sent the information out to Soviet sensors. So this is how they managed to... It's harder to detect because it would be these bursts every eight letters instead of... Um, oh, right. 
instead uh, of instead like of a, a constant stream. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. also, it made it easier on the battery in the transmitter device because it didn't have to transmit all the time. It had a transmitter built into it, of course, because they have to get the yeah. information. They can't come to the device. Yeah, and the, the storage was a big problem back then. Yeah. So they could only store uh, eight letters at a time. So that wouldn't make a very good keylogger. So I mean, even with that limitation, it. this is technically very impressive. I mean, oh, very, very impressive. Maybe did they, were they powering it off of the typewriter's power source too? Then I guess oh, we're about to get to that. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, um, when the buffer was full, the transmitter sent the information out to the Soviet censors. Uh, there was some ambiguity in determining which character was being typed. The NSA analysts, using the laws of probability, were able to figure out how the Soviets probably recovered the text. You know, uh, some of it was just looking at it, and you know, you, words can stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we, you know, there's that study at, I forget what university where you know, it, as long as the first and last letter of every word are right, you can read a whole sentence that's just full of typos and and letters out of order. And I so have on. tried that; it works. Mm-hmm. Say other factors which made it difficult to recover text include the following: the implants could not detect characters that were typed without the ball moving, like the space and so on, uh, or the hyphen. Uh, since the ball did not move or tilt when the typist pressed the hyphen, because it's located at the home position, um, the implants were also remarkable for the number of upgrades they received. You know, far from being a static device uh, that was built once and then left to do its jobs, the bugs were continuously refined. Basically, every time they built one, they built it better. Uh, there were five wow. different generations of the bug. Uh, three used uh, three types of units operated using uh, DC power and contained something like eight, nine, or ten batteries. Wow. Uh, I'm guessing like the little kind of like coin cell battery type things or button cell batteries. Um, the other two types operated from AC power. Uh, that the because these were electric typewriters right. that you plugged into the wall. Yeah. See, if you could somehow get the power source from the type, from the typewriter. Yeah. And those ones, actually, the transmitter could stay on all the time. And so it had a beacon to indicate when the typewriter was turned on or off. So the Soviets listening to these signals across, from across the street or whatever would be able to tell when the typewriter got switched on. And then the, that would, like, alert somebody. would sit there and watch as the person So they are, they are quite literally watching in real time. In real time, yeah. Wow. Uh, this is amazing for the 70s. Yeah. Uh, some of the units also had a modified on-off switch with a transformer, uh, which would allow them to um, stay on for a little bit after it got turned off, uh, while others had a special uh, coaxial screw with a spring and a lug. This modified switch sent power to the implant. Uh, since the battery-powered machines had their own internal power source, and the modified switch was not necessary for those ones. Mm. Uh, the special coaxial screw with a spring and lug connected to the implant was uh, uh, to the typewriter linkage, and this linkage was used as an antenna to transmit the information as it was being typed. Hmm. So they even made a version where they could pick it up from further away by having an antenna. Hmm. I think it's I think it's really smart too that they put a little uh, capacitor or whatever in there to hold some power so it could finish yep. transmitting when they flip the switch on the uh, typewriter. That way they yeah, don't well, miss a couple characters. Right, because it was uh, <laughs> it only transmitted when uh, the buffer got full to do this burst and so you could miss up to the last seven characters right and so yeah then they would just like flush the buffer when uh the power went out wow they say uh later battery powered implants had a test point underneath uh an end screw uh by removing the screw and inserting a probe an individual could easily read the battery voltage to see if the batteries were still active or if the battery needed to be changed yeah, i guess they need to do some maintenance or something yeah hmm. Uh, so it seems that maybe the Soviets had somebody inside the embassy to service these things. Yeah, possibly. Uh, or, the, you know, they maybe wanted to leave themselves the option if they could get in. Yep. 
Project Gunman, is that what it was? Uh, Project Gunman was the NSA's oh, they're looking into it. version of figuring out what the hell right. was happening. Right, okay. Uh, the devices could also be turned off to avoid detections when the Soviets' new inspection teams were in close proximity. <laughs> uh, newer devices operated by the U.S. may have had uh, the ability to detect the implants, but even uh, then, an element of luck would have been required since the infected typewriter would have to be turned on uh, and in most cases, actually, somebody would have to be typing on it for during the sweep, right? Right. So they go in and look for uh, spurious radio signals, and there wouldn't be any at that time because nobody was typing. Yeah, because, well, I'm a step away from my desk. So you can scan my desk. I yep. All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's uh, perfect, the, really. So, so the typewriter would have to be on, the bug would have to be on, uh, and the analyzer would have to be tuned to the right frequency. And then to lower this risk, the Soviet spies deliberately designed the devices to use the same frequency band as local television stations. And so, it, you know, when you saw the signal at that frequency, you wouldn't necessarily think of any, that it was anything. Right. But I wonder if that meant they had to be closer because of interference. I wonder if that meant that they yes. didn't have as much but, of a range. Uh, you know, um, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, there was always talk about that this old church across the road from it that was just like festooned with antennas and so on. Really? Yeah. That's totally where it was, huh? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I thought this is definitely an interesting example of how espionage works and how keyloggers happen. And, and you know, the fact that this is so much before computers just makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, and it also makes you realize, like, in the, in the era of cyber hacking, uh, in some ways it's a lot easier for them now than it used to be because... Well, yeah, <laughs> like, who's going to notice that on your uh, the USB end of your keyboard, if you just slipped, like... I don't. You've seen how so, small some of those like USB dongles are for oh, yeah. like the tiny yeah. uh, flash drives or wireless. If you just stuck something like that that had that was like just transparently slipped on a USB cable, and then plug that in, and then you'd be able to see everything typed on the keyboard. Hmm. You would like you wouldn't even notice that. Even if you look closely, you probably yeah, wouldn't yeah, notice that. Yeah. <laughs> the first keylogger. That's got to be it, right? Well, unless the US had one beforehand, but. Uh... I uh, like, too, that the, so the NSA had to create up, like, uh, y- y- they had to use, like, a lot of different simulations and the law of probability to figure out what they might have been able to get. Like, the NSA had to reconstruct. They must have had to use a device like this and type on it and then receive the output and then try to figure out how they assembled the sentences. And, you know, like, that, that process of breaking this down, could you imagine being one of the researchers on this and going, oh, shit, this, is must, this must have been what they did. Oh, man, they've been doing this for years. Like, that, that revelation as you're working on it must have been yep. really something. Um, and it got very minimal press coverage. I was looking, I was looking at um, the write-up, and uh, it looks like it got very, very little. Like, one, one source, I was reading the NSA's paper, one source kind of sort of got it, and they called it Key Trapper Hardware. Key Trapper. Not key logger, but key trapper, which I thought was kind of quaint and shows you how ahead of the times it was. Amazing technical achievements, too, Alan. And it ran to, what'd you say, 1984? Yeah, 76 to 84. Huh. Before we get into the roundup, let's take a moment and thank Ting for sponsoring this episode of the TechSnap program. Right now in your browser, do me a little Christmas favor. Go to techsnap.ting.com and check them out. It's mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you use with a flat $6 for the line. Isn't that great? They have CDMA and GSM that you get to choose from. The billing makes a ton of sense, and they have an awesome dashboard that allows you to manage your account, regardless of one phone or a whole bunch of phones. It is a very cool system, and they have companion apps for your device. So this is a very powerful system to begin with, and then they have really good apps for your device, way better than any other carrier out there. You just pay for what you use, 
techsnap.ting.com. That's the basics. Now, here's the really nice stuff. No contracts, no early termination fees. No contracts. The devices are unlocked. You own them outright. Isn't that cool? And the other thing that's really nice about Ting is they know that people that are going to be into this are going to be a little bit more savvy. And so they have some really great blog posts, uh, like uh, ones for cord cutters recently. Now, I am not a sports ball enjoyer, but they have a post over there for college football fans that are cord cutters on how you can watch the football game. So there you go. If you like the sports ball, they have something up there for cord cutters. They've also got some great devices, incredible prices, $9 for a SIM card for CDMA or GSM. They got the Nexus 6. They got the iPhone 6. They got Ansatel one-touch flips for $63. I mean, the range is awesome. The devices are great, and you own them outright. You only pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Flat $6. TechSnap.ting.com. Go try them out. Check out that savings calculator right there and see how much you would save. They have great customer support. They have a great online community, a good, good management dashboard with companion apps, no mysterious line items on your bill, and no contracts. TechSnap. Only every cell phone company was that nice. I know. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay. So now we're going to get into something a little fresh, a little something new. That's right. You guessed it. It's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that, well, we didn't have any at the top of the show. So we still want to give you something this week. And uh, I, I think Alan got a lot of these from producer Q5Sys this week. <laughs> so uh, our first Roundup story comes from Anonymous for hacking just for fun. You know, the European Space Agency. Just for fun. Yep. Just for fun. Uh, yeah, so apparently they broke in and released a bunch of files and so on. And when asked why, they were like, eh, for the lulls. For the lulls. Of course, Anonymous could be anybody, right? Yep. So who really knows? And anyone can claim to be part of Anonymous, so it's really weird, but anyway. The, okay, uh, now tell me about this next one. It comes from Cossack, is that how you say yes. it? Secure Comparator. Uh, so this is a zero-knowledge authentication system. Ooh. So the biggest problem with authentication is generally you send your password to the server and the server decides if it should let you in. Uh, in a perfect authentication system, neither end would have to send the password. And uh, I guess the, the example they used in this one was uh, two millionaires that want to see which one of them has more money without telling the other one how much money they actually have, right? So that's just an example. It, mostly it's about passwords. But the idea is that you need to uh, prove to the other side that you know the right password without either side having to give up the password. And, you know, so then we could have new HTTP authentication methods that doesn't have to send the password or a hash of the password over the network. Just some other way of proving uh, that you have the password and it's the same as the hmm. other guy's password okay. without either of you having to give up the password. Hmm. Right, because if, if both sides don't trust each other, mm-hmm. one side can't just send the password to the other one and see if it's right because then they'll be like, sure, that's right, and now they know your password, Right. Uh, and that's why we have something like SSL so we can prove the other side is actually who they say they are before you send their password to make sure it's not the wrong person that's going to get the password. Uh, but if we didn't have that, what we'd want is some system where I could prove that I have the password without actually giving up the password. And so this article describes uh, a theory on how that might work. Oh, neat. Mm-hmm. This next 
This next like roundup, it's fine. This next roundup almost sounds like uh, like a search engine for for like uh, for for a, a cyber hacking th- a scene in Hollywood. You know, like uh, kind of. So we have Shodan, which allows you to search based on like version strings of the applications and so on. But this new census.io is basically a search engine to find specific things or ranges of IP addresses or um, it's kind of more generalized, kind of trying to be like a Wolfram Alpha version of it where you can kind of find all the devices that do this or all the devices that behave in this way. Uh, I don't know that much about it, but it looks like uh, it's a cool new way to do things. Basically, yeah, since, uh, uh, instead of everybody having to do their own scans of the internet, this is a bunch of internet-wide scanning where all the results are available and for you, you can to search it. Search. Yeah. So it's faster and it's less. C-E-N-S-Y-S.io. Census? <laughs> yeah. But it allows you to basically create aggregate reports about what hosts on the internet do and so on. All right. Next story in the roundup is a, pill, a paper by somebody named Philip, the moral character of cryptographic work. Yeah. So it's just, uh, you know, discussing some of the other side of encryption and how, you know, encryption can change who's in charge, kind of, right? Because now people can't uh, do things to you because they can't read what you wrote and so on. The moral I, I just character. thought it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, it comes from the Department of Computer Science, University of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, government, can, can you hear me now? Cell site simulators aren't secret anymore. I'm so glad to hear this story coming out. Uh, we've talked about these stingrays over and over again, right? Yeah, and Triggerfish and Dirtbox. And- yeah, they, and so... Uh, the, I guess the, the veil of secrecy is kind of starting to be Well, back. I think the big one here is that because people other than the government can do it now, it's important that the cell phone carriers stop them from working by turning on the encryption that they've been you know, resisting turning on because it would stop the government monitoring. Right. Yeah. You know, hmm. Your cell phone shouldn't associate to a cell tower that's not a real one. I, uh, I'm really glad to see that story getting some air, and I'm going to keep watching that. Uh, all right, so this next one comes from HackRed. Uh, attacker embeds malware in the Guardian's cybercrime article, so an article about cybercrime. Yeah, so uh, there's a 2011 article about cybercrime on the Guardian's website, and somebody managed to compromise the site and eject uh, the Angler malware kit into the article. So if you read it, you would get the malware. <laughs> there you go. I found that quite ironic. I, and, I'm surprised uh, we didn't see a lot of coverage about that. Uh, it, well, it's brand new. Well, there you happened. go. There is coverage about it, I suppose. Yeah, right it, it didn't happen in 2011. It happened, they just yeah. targeted the old article. LifeLock to pay $100 million to consumers to settle an FTC charges that uh, it violated a, two, a 2010 court order. The FTC alleged that the company violated its orders on the information security requirements and misled consumers with deceptive advertising. Yeah, so LifeLock is one of those uh, credit monitoring type services. And... Uh, yeah, deceptive advertising, misled consumers, and had poor IT practices that led to data compromises. Well, I'm, you know what? Not all that surprised to see this happen. Nice to see them getting a penalty for it, though. Yeah, that is true. That is true. In the tough world of cybersecurity, cybersecurity researchers are being hunted from all sides. Yeah, so there's a couple of stories here, but the one is uh, a security researcher, Peter Cruz. Uh, started a security group in Denmark and one day got a cell phone call from his mother. Although when he answered the phone, it wasn't his mother. It was some guy telling him that he needs to stop doing what he's doing. Or there was a guy, uh, Kaspersky, and uh, while he was analyzing Stuxnet, uh, he was, you know, had someone break into his house and try to intimidate him. 
That's pretty creepy too. Creepy, Alan. Creepy. From Motherboard, another uh, another Vice article. Alan, another Vice article. And then our last article, it must, I mean, it's only appropriate. It comes from Mr. Krebs, the role yes. of phony returns in gift card fraud. Yeah. So this one always comes up during the holidays because people get a lot of gift cards. And uh, also, there's, so there's these sites where you can, you know, you get a gift card for a store you don't like. You can go to some of these sites and sell the gift card to somebody who would want one from that store. And you probably won't get the face value for it, but you get some amount of money that you can actually go to spend on something useful. And people like to do it because, oh, I can get a $100 gift card for Petco for $60 or whatever. Uh, but it turns out a lot of these are fraud. Uh, what people are doing is they'll go to a store and steal some merchandise. And then they'll go to a different store and return it. And if you want to return something, apparently some of these places, you know, normally they require a receipt to give you a refund. But if you don't have a receipt, they won't give you a refund, but they will give you uh, store a, credit or whatever. A store credit in the form of one of these gift cards. Yeah. Because then the worst thing you can do is buy something from them, right? Uh, but so if you go and steal a bunch of stuff and then return it to a different store and get these cards and then sell them at a discount, you've just got free money, right? And it's a little harder to track down because. The person that ends up spending the gift card is totally innocent. Yeah. But Krebs has a whole story about how it works. And uh, probably be a bit of that going on over the holiday season. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and you wonder you know, how many of the gift cards you got were bought cheaply because they were stolen or whatever. It's just, it works a little different than you thought. You would think, oh, the cheap ones are like fake or something. It's like, no, they're perfectly yeah. legitimate. Yeah. It's just that, you know. Yeah. They were ill gotten. Huh. Well, Mr. Jude, that brings us to the end of this special holiday edition of the TechSnap program. 246 comes to a conclusion, but 247 is already in the works. We'll have a special episode out next week of a retrospective from 2015. A look back at some of the more current stuff that we covered in the TechSnap program and also some new content sprinkled in there like we did with this here episode. Hope you have a great holiday. Thanks so much for watching the TechSnap program, and we'll see you right back here next week. 